everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Seat Struck Movie Podcast. My name is John and joining me as always are my co-hosts, Quinn. Hey guys. And Curtis. Hello. Today is August 22nd. Uh, it's fun for us today because uh, we weren't able to record last week. So we've had a kind of a little bit of a break. So, you know, we're kind of catching up, getting back together. Uh, I hope everyone's doing well. I hope you guys are doing well here in Ottawa. I know uh, Quinn can attest to you. It's been incredibly hot. We're in the middle of a pretty big heat wave. Thankfully, we're recording a little bit earlier in the day, so it's not like an oven in my apartment right now. So that that's helpful. Um, how's it going with you, Curtis? How's your how's your how's your week been? Uh, really busy. Yeah, I finished uh, writing my 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 dis- I'm turning my dissertation into a book, so I submitted for oh, publication. Thanks, man. I was up late on Friday, and I'm going to Istanbul tomorrow for a week long vacation. First vacation since February 2020. So pretty exciting, and visiting some friends. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, so yeah, busy week, and uh, I'm looking at. Uh, uh, new apartments too for uh, October. So <laughs> just getting a lot done before I go, but uh, obviously, you know, nice to have the podcast before I leave, you know, so it's uh, looking forward to today very much. What have you guys yeah. been up to? Uh, man, just work, just work, planning a wedding. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it, man. It's been pretty, uh, pretty hectic on my end, but super, uh, super looking forward to today's podcast. And I must admit, I'm super jealous, man. Like uh, Istanbul, <laughs> Turkey, like that sounds like a, a blast. Yeah, man. Well, if you want a postcard or anything, I'm happy to send along something too. So let me know what I can do. I, I would <laughs> find any knickknacks. I love like random knickknacks and shit. Yeah, so I'll, I'll get you a really knickknack. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. That's what I've been. That's yeah. What I've heard. <laughs> if, you find, if you find Liam Neeson there looking for people, I'll give you five. Well, stars. I, I don't know if you guys are a big uh, fan of uh, the Troy or any of those kind of similar movies, but I'm going to Chinakula too, which is where they had the uh, tro- original Troy took place. So oh, they wow. actually have the tro- they have the Trojan horse from the uh, the movie Troy, which wasn't a great oh, movie, so cool. but I mean, it's kind of it's a cool a, pop anyway. It's kind yeah. of a guilty pleasure movie. I, re- yeah, I think I rewatched exactly. it a year or two ago and I was like, it's kind of fun to watch. After a few drinks, it gets even more fun. Yeah. So yeah, I don't want to go too off topic, but I feel like they don't really make like blockbuster ones like that now. It's all it's all like superhero <laughs> stuff. It's all cape stuff. It's not like let's just yeah, was, spend like a million a, on like a, bygone, a bygone era of of, uh, <laughs> of uh, classic epics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, this is a little bit off topic for what we're talking about today, but we're today. Um, this is uh, our recurring series talking about our personal canon films, referring to films. Um, not necessarily ones that are the best, but films that, you know, mean a lot to us, kind of if we were on a desert island and we had to have like a short list of movies to watch for the rest of our lives, uh, these would be on there, ones that we think are kind of our own personal favorites. And uh, today is Quinn's uh, episode, and for his, his first choice, he's picked uh, the movie Psycho, the 1960 horror thriller by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, before we get into kind of the history and kind of development of this, uh, Quinn, did you want to just kind of give a general uh context for like why did you pick this one or like what does this movie kind of mean to you yeah um i know my my dad is a big uh big hitchcock fan so i saw a lot of movies when i was younger just like watching it on tv and whatever like like i know the birds uh, that's another one that means a lot to me um you know rear window vertigo um films like that but like yeah alfred hitchcock is a big uh is a big reason why i would consider myself a, a, a fan of film and like interested to the point where I'll be watching 
you know, as much good content as I can for the rest of my life. But uh, I saw Psycho when I was about 12 and uh, it scared the shit out of me. And it, it still does to this day. It has just sort of that, it, it has that effect on me that it's that desiccated head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, it, it doesn't really fade. It's just sort of that thought, like it's similar to the shining, like not that the shining really scares me anymore. Cause I've seen it a hundred times, but it's like the first time that I saw it, it's just like the score of it, the everything yeah. about it sort of sends shivers up my spine. And psycho is one of those movies where, um, structurally it's it's a it's really good it's it's a good length um hitchcock you know uses his his um his sort of vision with like uh you know cool cool shots and again it's just like it's just a beautiful picture and all things considered i mean it was made in 1960 and uh i mean if it came out today it would still pretty much hold up it's just a it's just a, a piece of history and uh yeah man psycho means a lot to me so that's why i picked it cool cool yeah and i think uh you know you brought up a good point about horror like a lot of you know our favorite horror films if you watched in the past we've probably watched them tons of times you know when you rewatch when you rewatch them a lot of times you're not necessarily as scared as you were when you first saw them but i think you still remember a lot of those associated feelings like i think of i, I recently a, a while back i rewatched uh uh, Ringu, the Japanese horror film. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 I watched The Ring when it came out. And, you know, I, I've watched a lot of scary movies. I grew up watching scary movies with my mom when I was way too young to watch them. And The Ring actually scared me a lot more than a lot of those other 80s and 70s flicks that I saw. And I remember watching it in my basement and I, I went to bed and like I couldn't even sleep. It's one of the few movies that I watched where like I literally could not sleep. And I, and I, you know, you watch it today and I don't I don't feel the same horror, but I still remember those same memories of watching it and kind of that that terror it put in you. And I think, you know, Psycho, it's kind of it, it kind of brings up the same vibe where, you know, if you've if you've watched it before, you know what to expect. I mean, famously, this movie has kind of like a big plot plot twist plot uh, dynamic we're going to get into. But um, you can still kind of see, you know, the art in it and you can still remember those feelings. And, you know, even even though you know what's going to happen. Um, you can still really appreciate the way it's the plots laid out and stuff like that. So um, just to kind of get into a little bit, we're going to go into, as we do with these uh, uh, deep dives, we're going to talk a little bit about movie summary and kind of give our thoughts. But I just want to talk a little bit about kind of the development of this movie, because I didn't really know much about it. And actually doing this podcast so far has been really fun uh, reading up on kind of the production of these movies. I'm really like into learning a lot about how these movies come together, because movies aren't just like one person who does everything. It's a collection of various talents and people and and a lot of these movies sometimes uh take years and years to develop and there's different you know different people are involved and uh, in this case you know this movie wasn't something that took very long it was actually something that came together in a short period of time it's based on a novel that came out in 1959 um which my understanding is this novel is loosely based on uh, the famous serial killer ed gain and i think that's sort of what they used kind of to model norman bates however my understanding that's one thing, too, I noticed, too, with a lot of these horror movies, too, the scariest ones always seem to come from the life, you know, Ed Gain, or we'll talk about uh, more, I think, too, but. Yeah, it's like the horror in actual reality, and I think that's, yeah. we're going to, we're going to, yeah, we're going to talk Human about monsters, this movie. Yeah. but that's, I think, one of the real strengths of this movie is, is sort of, yeah, the kind of the un- evil that can kind of come from anywhere. It's not, uh, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about, I think it was episode one or two, talking about the differences, kind of the, bana- the banality of evil versus evil is sort of this unspeakable supernatural evil presence and you know i i kind of tend for the the latter a little bit more sometimes than the former but i do think there there is something that's really interesting and, and scary and sort of uh, horror that can kind of come from you know sort of anywhere and you know re-watching this i i i had those sort of same same feelings 
Um, so this movie kind of came in an interesting period um, in Hitchcock's life. He was actually, he had just come off uh, two projects that kind of fell apart uh, with Paramount. Um, he was sort of, you know, I mean, he was still very much in his, you know, critical prime, but this was sort of kind of the beginning of his later career, um, you know, famously. Um, he was a credibly successful director through the 19, you know, even, even in the, even in the 1920s, you know, in the early area heading into the, you know, post-silent era, but, you know, certainly through the forties and fifties, some of his greatest works. Um, but this period of time, he was, he was kind of really reliant on, you know, some of his other staff, his assistant Peggy Robertson. She actually read the book psycho and reached out to him and said, you know, this would actually make kind of for a good movie. So he, he looked into it and then was able to acquire the rights uh, to adapt it, which I, you know, it's funny because a lot of, you read a lot of like snobbish horror fans. They're like, Oh, I hate, how everything nowadays is like an adaptation and it's like actually adaptations <laughs> been going on forever. This, yeah. is, this is literally an adaptation. Well, yeah. This is like the, penup, the penultimate, you know, origin of like the slasher genre. So it's kind of like, you know, adaptations well, and remakes have been going on, you know, since time immortal. With, with Hitchcock too, I'm teaching a, a Daphne du Maurier's Jamaica in next term. And he was such a Daphne du Maurier fan, you know, he adapted Jamaica in and the birds and um, it's another one, Rebecca too, you know? So, yeah. I mean, there's always adaptations you know, even as far back as Hitchcock, you know? Yeah, and what's cool with this too, the crew itself, this was filmed, of course, famously in black and white. Um, he actually used his uh, TV show, The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Crew, to make this movie. And as actually as a result, this movie has a much lower budget than even some of the ones that came before and after. Um, the, the previous movie, North by Northwest, uh, released in 1959, had a budget of $4.3 million, which even, you know, thinking about with inflation, that's probably like close to probably like 12 or 15 million. I'm doing the rough math in my head. I don't really know, but I, that's, that's a pretty, you know, reasonable sum. Uh, the birds, which came out a year later or not a year later, three years later in 1963, that was 3.3 million. Uh, by comparison, Psycho released in 1960, $806,947 budget, which is incredible. I mean, even with inflation, that's still a couple of million maybe at the most. That, that's pretty good. And I, I, you know, compared to those two movies, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's a testament to the strength of the movie because it is a little bit stripped down. It's filmed in black white. It's using kind of a, a different crew. Um, famously, it's composed by, oh, my God, God King, probably, you know, top five favorite composers. God tier. God tier. <laughs> yeah. Bernard Herrmann, you know, he was, he's one of the That's... most legendary score. Yeah, he went one of the most legendary composers. And especially even his last, I think his last film was Taxi Driver, which is like probably like my favorite score of any movie. I, I love that score. Well, which is funny too, like him and John Williams are like the absolute goats, but um, <laughs> like Bernard Herrmann, if you look his, at his IMDb, like um, he did the famous whistling song in Kill Bill. Like the, the guy did fucking everything. And like some of the greatest films ever made, like, yeah. If you don't know who Bernard Bernard Herrmann is, you have to look into his stuff because yeah. his, his work is uh, like Curtis said, God tier. Yeah, and he did a lot of uh, Hitchcock films too. I believe he did the score for Vertigo as well too. Yep. He did some of his other yep. ones in the in the fifties. Uh, so you That's know he right. was a he was a close friend. And actually, looking into this uh, a little, I'm kind of skipping ahead of the notes, but uh, he actually came into the involvement of this earlier or a little bit later. Like uh, uh, Hitchcock had already filmed a lot of it before he had actually heard the score. And you know, we're going to talk about the, of course the famous shower scene. But famously, the shower scene was originally filmed without any music, and then. It was after hearing her Bernard Herman put in the theme where he was like, oh, my God, this is great. And I really like uh, once he once he heard the score that you know Bernard Herman was developing, he's like, we need to have you involved in this movie. We need to have that. And um, I think it was to his credit because, uh, I mean, we'll talk uh, again. I'm going to gush a little bit more about the score, but uh, it's great. Uh, George Tom Tomasini is the editor of this movie, does a great job. And man, famously Saul Bass. We're going to get a little bit about into about sort of kind of the little bit of conspiracies and rumors about this movie. But he did, of course. 
had the title design for the opening sequence and was very much involved in the storyboarding of this movie, specifically with the shower scene. Um, There are, of course, changes from this adaptation from the Psycho book. Um, Norman in the book, I've never actually read Psycho. I know there's Psycho and there's also sequel books as well, too. But my understanding is Norman in the books, he's actually kind of meant to be portrayed a little bit more like grotesquely he's 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 older he's overweight he's um he doesn't have like the same church choir boy look that like anthony perkins has he has kind of that um you know sweet kind of uh jimmy stewart look to him kind of all-american young and i mean watching this again we're gonna get into it but like watching this again i mean anthony perkins is so young in this like i mean you watch these movies when you're a kid and everyone seems old everyone seems like adults but re-watching them like i, I I'm thinking off the top of my head, he would have been no older than like 30. I think he was only in his late twenties, like our age. So, I mean, he's, he's incredibly young in this. And he just looks like a, he looks like a little baby in this. It's incredible. Uh, but uh, it, they also changed some other characterizations. Um, I guess in the book, uh, Norman Bates is actually an alcoholic. So they removed that. And he also is very much a fixated on the occult. And he has like an obsession with, uh, with pornography as well too. I think a lot of that was kind of aping Ed Gein. Ed Gein and in this case, Hitchcock changed a lot of that. I think to its credit, because uh, you know we're gonna get into the plot details, but I think part of the appeal of this is the fact that you know Norman Bates it seems like this kind of simple church choir boy, and there there is a kind of an inherent mystery involved, even though nowadays, much like with films like say Star Wars, Usual Suspects, the, the spoiler, the plot is well known all throughout pop culture. But you know, if you come into this blind, there is a little bit of suspense and mystery into kind of the the nature of these deaths and murders. Um, also, a focus on Marion Crane is much larger in this movie. In, in the book, it's they only spend a couple of chapters on her, but famously in this movie, we spend uh, most much of the first half is focused uh, just on her. Um, Joseph Stefano, the screenwriter, you know, he indicated he wanted to indicate that something was kind of wrong or off with Norman, but not that you know it was like really spelled out. Like they didn't want to reveal that you know Norman is this terrible killer, bad guy. They wanted to kind of keep that mystery hidden. Um, and also as well in the book, I guess there's a little bit of kind of like a, a romance, a budding romance between Sam and Lila. In this case, Hitchcock didn't really do that. There is kind of like a weird little domestic pairing with them, but otherwise he really, Hitchcock just really wanted to kind of keep the focus on the mystery itself. And as a result, the movie's quite tight. Um, the novel's also much more violent. I think there's uh, characterizations, I think um, in particular, a character is beheaded. That's not at all in this. You have to keep in mind that this was 1960s and famously, even the scene where, uh, pieces of paper were left in the toilet. I think this was actually the first movie where like a toilet was shown in a bathroom or even like a bathroom in much detail was shown, you know? Um, we think about now, especially following the sixties, you know, in late 68, you have uh, Night of the Living Dead, kind of the beginning of kind of the exploitation horror era. And you look at the seventies and eighties and horror was just kind of going off the charts with its, you know, profet- you know, profanity, sex, drugs, violence. And, you know, this is sort of this still in the classic era of, you know, kind of stripped down horror other than, uh, you know, other than this movie and then some of the other other works from other directors that were kind of the early kind of proto slashers, you didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, intense violence that you would see in, in later in later decades. Um, and of course, um, in terms of the cast, we have Janet Leigh playing um, Marion Crane. She signed on after reading the book. Uh, she was, of course, a, a friend of Hitchcock. Anthony Perkins also joined as well, too. And um, we have an excellent cast. I think uh, Vera Miles playing uh, uh Marion Crane's uh, sister Lila and we have uh, just it's a really a, quite a solid cast as well um, so um, anything else that we want to note before we get into uh, kind of the summary of this movie um, anything else you guys want to mention about sort of the production or the history of it um, I, I, I did want to talk about Robert Block the because uh, it's an adaptation of his work obviously too sure. a really great um, you know writer obviously too and another film uh, if you guys haven't seen it Asylum it's an anthology film with uh, um, Peter Cushing 
Um, so it's uh, it's really great. It's a great anthology film that he kind of wrote the screenplay for as well too. So that's worth checking out. If you guys haven't, I think it's on Shutter. So oh, cool, cool. Already. Thanks. So let's get into Psycho. So of course the movie begins. Oh my God, I rewatched this. I've forgotten so much of the movie, even though like I know the movie in and out. I just realized how much kind of specific kind of filming techniques and details I've forgotten. We get that amazing title sequence with, I, I've had the theme of this, the theme of the movie in my head like two weeks. I think I watched this like two weeks ago and I've had this theme in my head nonstop. We get an amazing title sequence um, with the main theme by Bernard Herrmann. They're like, dun, 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 dun. and I mean, the score is great. And of course, famously, the score in this movie would have kind of a lasting legacy and impact on horror movies to come, most notably with kind of the, the shrieking strings and that sort of thing. And I, I, we see that kind of played out in the movies to follow a lot of the thrillers and slashers that would come after this, kind of use the same kind of instrumentation with kind of the the, the, the string instrumentation and, and that sort of thing uh, for kind of violent moments. And I, I think even, even something as simple as like a 90s slasher, like I know how you did, I know what you did last summer, Scream, where you get kind of the like, shink, when like a killer pop, like that's, that's really tracing itself back to this, back to this movie. So we get that great title sequence again. Uh, who, who is it? Uh, Saul Bass, thank you for it, because it's amazing. And then uh, we get kind of uh, the beginning of the story. And, uh, you know, Quinn, you were saying like, you know, this, this could have came out today and it would look good. I, I really think so too, because um, the way the camera works, especially this beginning scene where we get this kind of long pan showing Phoenix, um, it's I think what is it is a Friday in Phoenix we get this like long zoom into this apartment in Phoenix and it's a really impressive camera technique for its time and it still looks quite good I mean it's a little bit dated but yeah. um, even today you're like how did they like set up all these cameras to get the focus to zoom in like that and we get a zoom into um, this apartment where we see uh, our main uh, protagonist Marion Crane she's uh, having a little bit of like a tryst like a little sexual encounter with a uh, her uh, her part her friend I guess her her fuck buddy <laughs> Sam Loomis again the name as well we're gonna talk again a little bit next episode about Halloween Sam Loomis of course the name of that would be a reference to used later in Halloween for Doctor Loomis in, in Halloween but uh, um, kind of a fun little scene here they're having a little bit of a tryst and uh, you know it's quite risque for I think a movie in the sixties we see her you know she's almost she's not nude of course there's no famously no no real nudity in this movie but she's in a bra and like they're you know it's implied that they're you know they're having a sexual encounter and I think. For its time, I imagine this would have been, you know, quite a risque scene. Uh, Marion, you know, she loves Sam. She wants to be in a relationship with him. She says, you know, like, let's, let's just get married. And he says, like, I can't because he's got a lot of debts. He does, just does not in a financial position to get married. Um, you know, the movie moves onward. Marion's at work. She works, it looks like she works at some sort of real estate office or somewhere where she handles money and stuff like that. Um, in fact, also, there's uh, famously Hitchcock makes his cameos in all his movies, or at least most of them. Um, when we see the office that she works at outside there's a man in a Stetson hat, that's, that's Hitchcock. And also as well, her coworker Caroline is played by uh, Patricia Hitchcock, Hitchcock's uh, daughter. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons why he's kind of cameo in that scene, because it's this moment where he's actually pretty close proximity in the movie to his own daughter, which is kind of cool. Um, so she's working there. Uh, this kind of crusty client comes in. He's like, I think he's trying to pay for a property. He's leaving a big lump sum of cash and he's pretty crusty. Like he wants to go out. He's like, let's go out for drinks with her boss. And he's like pretty, he's pretty hitting on her. Although it is played a little bit funny. Like he's crusty, but there is kind of a little bit of a, a little bit of a back and forth. And I, I thought that was, that was pretty funny. Uh, her, her boss asked her to drop it off because she, Marion Crane says, you know, I have a headache. I don't feeling really good. So her boss says, okay, you can go home, but just make sure you drop this money off at the bank before uh, you head home. Um, so that really kind of begins the the main crux of the story. Marion Crane decides to steal 
the $40,000, quite a bit of a, you know, a lump sum of money for uh, 1960. You know, I'd imagine that'd be almost like, uh, you know, real estate's gone up as we were talking about before the hop, but it'd be enough to maybe put like an eighth of a down payment on a house there or something like crazy like that. But uh, so she decides to steal the money. She's heading to Fairvale, California to meet with her lover, Sam. And there's a great moment where she's uh, driving along through the city and stops and you see her boss walk by and he turns around and looks at her. That's kind of a moment I think that's also referenced, referenced in a lot of other films. And I think that's one of the things that's cool to watch with this movie is that there's so many shots and scenes, even outside of like something like the famous shower scene that's been used in a lot of films. There's even moments that you can kind of see elsewhere, like the scene where she, the boss crosses, looks at her, reminds me a lot of like Marcellus Wallace crossing at Pulp Fiction and returns and looks at the- <laughs> What you know, does Marcellus Wallace look like? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's one of the, the best things about Hitchcock, I find. Like with most of his movies, um, he was probably the first director that I saw timeline-wise that could tell a story just by the shot. So yeah. like, like I, I know um, Janet Leigh, when she pulls up to the motel, and we'll get to that later, but um, you see him coming out of the house, the Bates yeah. the, the house. And it's similar to Rear Window where you see Jimmy Stewart's perspective in this courtyard, but you see a character walk down an alley towards the street, but it tells you the story without even dialogue or anything. He just, he, yeah, he was a master, masterful filmmaker. Yeah, I really love, you know, I, honestly, like, I have to admit, like when it comes to Hitchcock, I've liked what I've seen by him, but most of my Hitchcock, I've seen, uh, I've seen the birds, I've seen this one, and I believe I've seen, uh, rear window as well but i've actually i've have not watched a lot of his stuff but i you know i've, I've watched bits of it here and there uh but you know as a visual director he was kind of you know someone who really would have just a massive if you have to think about directors who had a lasting legacy and influence on the rest of the 20th century cinema i think hitchcock's probably at the, the apex of that mountain because the, just the way the scale and the sense of geography and his and his shots in this movie and I'm, I'm guessing in his other movies as well too is is really well done a lot of great a lot of mo visual motifs with shadows a lot of windows a lot of things framed through different obfuscation through windows and frames like that but I, I just find like the sense of geography and kind of the the three-dimensional square you know patterns of how characters move around I really like that and it, it really adds like a sense of space and that's kind of one of my biggest gripes in a lot of bad movies is where I'm just like I don't know what the hell's going on I don't know where anyone is I have a hard time really investing emotionally in a movie if I don't really feel like I could actually kind of be in that world. I don't really feel where the kicks fit in. And I think, you know, Hitchcock uh, doesn't have that going on where you, 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 if you watch this, like I can almost map out my brain, the exact layout of, you know, the, the Bates house, the Bates the motel, even the city when she's driving, like it, it's played very well. Like you could, you could easily sketch out the entire flow of this movie, which I think is, uh, yeah. is, is a testament to his, uh, you know, his visual filmmaking. You got to watch Vertigo, John. Watch I gotta watch. I, yeah, I've never, and that's the what's one that's oh, that's, 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 yeah. that's my favorite. That's my favorite. I would say too. I, I'm not. I'm not joking when I say this. So obviously, I picked Psycho from my Canon film this week, um, as you know, one of my favorites, Desert Island. But Psycho, or sorry, Vertigo, rather, is it's so good. It, it's 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 without a doubt one of the greatest films ever made, and I know like. A lot of people say that and it's easy to say that, but without a doubt, Vertigo is, is like one of the best. And Bernard Herman does it too. Yeah. And uh, you need to do yourself a favor, man. Honestly, this week, if you get a chance to watch Vertigo. Yeah, or we'll eventually do our like a deep dive into Hitchcock at some point. And I'll for sure Let's watch do that. It. Let's do that. 
Yeah, yeah and uh, and and I mean, Vertigo is off the side. It's like one of his best movies. This one as well, too. Uh, but certainly that's uh, Vertigo as well, too. Uh, so anyways, to, to carry on, she's uh, she decides to leave the city. She's heading to, uh, to Fairvale, California. Um, she's driving away. She actually pulls over to sleep. I actually like totally forgot a lot of these little detail moments, but she pulls over to sleep and she gets woken up by this police officer. I love the way he's framed, like just like his full head in the frame. And uh, it, again, yeah, there's looks, a lot of he looks like Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does actually he looks look like a lot Humphrey like him. Bogart. And like, like, even sounds a bit like him too. Not totally. It doesn't have the same, same like the same yard accent, That's but he's right. got a little bit of a Bogart and a little bit of bogey in him. Yeah, I have. Um, I'm actually. I'm watching Psycho right now on mute. I just have it on in my room just okay. because. <laughs> just because, why not? Yeah. And uh, dude, he he's like identical to Humphrey. Like he looks exactly like Bogey. And I thought of that when I watched it again a couple weeks ago. Like, it's, man. Did it, they did this thing in undergrad when I was in undergrad with, with the undergrad my film class? I don't know if you guys ever tried this, but they used to try and sync the or they used to watch the uh, uh, Hitchcock's Psycho and Gus Van Sant's one like you know next to each other. Oh, cool. they're they're all shot exactly yeah. the same way, which I think is kind of cool. I never tried it, but it would be kind of fun to try. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah that would be interesting. Yeah, and uh, and, and and you know thinking about it now, like I, one of the things that's really works this movie is that you know Janet Lee is constantly kind of contrasted with these kind of leering male characters that you're not really sure about. There's, we're going to get to kind of the motifs and themes of this movie, but certainly one of the themes is kind of um, the way that like kind of women are portrayed as kind of, you know, these victimized characters. And, you know, the movie really invites you as the male watcher to kind of in that sort of mindset of almost like a, someone who's sort of this leering, you know, abuser, rapist or murderer. And, and like, we constantly see these scenes where she's kind of very vulnerable and kind of a close space. Like she's in her office space in her work environment. This creepy man is leering on her. Um, talking about going out for drinks, you know, being very amorous with her in this scene. She's kind of closed off in her car, very vulnerable with this leering police officer filling the frame. Uh, he's kind of asking her, like, what's going on? She says, like, pulled over. I was falling asleep. I was tired. He says, like, oh, like, you have to be, you should be really careful. You know, you shouldn't be uh, doing that. But right away, he's really sketched out by her behavior. He knows there's something up with her. So he decides to follow her. She pulls into a, she stops in Bakersfield, California. She pulls into a car dealership. She trades in her car uh, for one with a California plate. She's driving in from Arizona, of course. Um, and she, uh, once again, we see the cop, the police officer, uh, you know, watching her again. But, you know, after that, doesn't really pursue her. But uh, she drives off um, and into the night. And, of course, this is where we're getting into the, the heart of our film. She's driving along. It's dark out. It starts to rain profusely. I'm like, wow, windshield wipers must have sucked ass back then because it's just like water sh shooting at her. I mean, granted, this is filmed like at a studio location. But I'm like, I imagine the... The wipers back then weren't the best. Uh, she sees the sign for Bates Motel. So she pulls into the Bates Motel and that's where we finally meet uh, Norman Bates, played by uh, the lovable Anthony Perkins. Um, yeah, it's a great way to kind of set, set it up, doesn't it? You know, it's with the, the kind of sleazy kind of neon lighting, you know, with yeah, the hotel and yeah. everything too. Yeah, and it, like, it's very isolating. Again, we're getting characters framed by these kind of obfuscated environments. We see you know, Norman Bates come from far away. We don't really get a good look at him. He goes into the office, she goes in. And she starts to talk with him. Should we find out that this uh, motel, it's off of a, a former highway. So it's kind of now, you know, very sparsely attended to. It's kind of like one of these like dying middle America sort of uh, small businesses. But he's very excited for her to be there. He offers her, gives her the key and everything. He actually offers for her to join him for uh, like a little dinner. So um, she's kind of getting ready to meet him for dinner. She overhears him arguing with this woman. Uh, we find out that that's actually an argument between Norman Bates and his mother. And then we get the, you know, the great dinner scene where they're, um, they're, they're together. And I also just want to quickly note before I get to that, you know, there's a lot of great improvisation work with, I think, Perkins and Lay. They have a really good chemistry in this movie, the way that they go back and forth. A lot of really great 
um, techniques. Uh, famously, Norman Bates, when he's eating candy corn, I think later in the movie, he's just constantly eating candy. That was actually a bit of improvisation by uh, by Anthony Perkins. And uh, famously, Hitchcock would actually like hide a lot of uh, uh, props, like the, the the mother. He would hide props of the mother in like various areas of the set, or when Janet Lee to actually scare her and keep her on edge. Nowadays, I think you'd kind of consider that to be a little bit of like a weird, abusive director behavior. But you know, it back then, like, it sounds like Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now, now you know norms have changed since then. But I think you know to to I don't want to you know prove of that type of behavior, but I think you know it did work in terms of she said like it really helped to kind of keep her on edge as an actress, and it really like it, it you could see like in just in her mannerisms that she's always kind of weary and not knowing what to expect um, as things are going on. So he meets her in the parlor room man the, the way the shadows are framed especially with these leering birds of prey there's this visual motif of birds famously her name crane is like a reference to birds itself um, we see all these like uh, birds of prey like leering over her hawks and eagles foreshadowing what's to come uh, deep shadows kind of draping over her and you know spotlighting norman bates uh, we find a conversation between her and norman bates as they're eating we find out that norman bates um you know he's had kind of a little bit of a troubled uh you know, life. His mother was married, was uh, his father died when he was young. His mother remarried to this man who convinced her to buy this motel. Uh, he passed away. And ever since her, his mother has been very distraught. He says, um, you know, Marion's kind of like, well, why don't you move away? You know, you're like a grown man now. You, you know, you should be able to move on with your life. Uh, but he's really kind of pushing back on that. You know, says the great line, a mother's best friend is her, is her son. Uh, and, you know, he's, he, we clearly see that he's got some serious mommy issues going on here. And, uh, you know, following the conversation, Janet Lee really feels bad. And she actually makes the decision that she's going to actually head back to return the money. Uh, but we get a crucial moment where she actually wraps up the money in newspaper and puts it in her suitcase. Meanwhile, we see after the dinner, Norman Bates lifts up a framed painting uh, to look at, uh, to leer at her from uh, his home office. And again, we're, I'm, I guess we're, this is like a deep dive, so we can be a bit spoiler spoilery. We know what happens. We know who the actual killer involved is. But it's really great scene because again we don't actually know until much later the movie if norman bates is the one who's doing it and again it's a little scene where you're kind of like foreshadowing like is this someone who could be trusted is he just like a creeper um but we don't really know for a fact if he actually is the killer so it's a little great moment there that you know makes you on edge and makes you to not really know how to read norman bates uh going forward um so she goes into the bathroom again a very like risque scene you know again i think famously there had never been a scene shot in like a full bathroom like this before with like where we see a toilet and stuff like that um she takes her clothes off taking a shower and you know now we get into the the famous iconic shower scene where uh, she's showering we see this looming shadow move in pulls the curtains open it's this kind of shadowy figure with like a dress and long hair with a knife and stabs her and and murders her um what can i say this is if we're talking about you know shots and scenes uh, in our podcast this is probably like one of the with the top five most famous scenes in a movie ever. Um, certainly this one has been, you know, parodied many times. I was just watching, I, 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 we always uh, throw on The Simpsons at night when we're going to bed. And there's been, I think, multiple times where this has been referenced in The Simpsons where like Maggie hits Homer with the hammer. It's like shot for shot done like that. There's other scenes in other uh, films and movies that are kind of like parodying Psycho that show that scene. Also homages. We're going to get into what we watched this week. Uh, but we re I watched, I uh, rewatched Friday the 13th part three. There's a scene where, uh, character takes a shower that's filmed exactly like the psycho scene where we see her kind of side profile where she's showering we see kind of the looming figure moving and it's it's filmed exactly exactly just like that scene so it was kind of cool to watch this movie and then a couple of days later watch that one and be like oh it's the same it's the same yeah. scene and that that's what that's what people forget too about psycho it's like if you watch it now and you don't really think it holds up or you're not really shocked by it you have to remember that it was made in 1960 and that it influenced yeah 
like mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of productions since it changed it, it completely changed the game like even uh even the shots of janet lay like her her eyes her eyes fill up the screen and that's what i remember watching it as a kid like her driving down the street when it's raining in the car and like her like the entire shot is like her eyes it seems which is sort of owl like which is kind of yeah. funny because birds of prey and whatever else but um yeah th that's what people have to remember it's uh it was the first of its kind right well like even when you see like a, you know when you see a gun in a film nowadays there's so many guns in films there's so many knives but back then when you saw a, a knife or a gun or something it's very symbolic too so you know that something's going to happen too so when you see that knife kind of going down the shower i mean it's it's absolute terror because you know that knife is you know what that knife is there for too it's a murder weapon and That's uh it's a lot yeah. more subtle and well, to some degree meaningful, I think, in these films too, especially for those audiences too, because I mean, it doesn't have that ubiquitousness of, of kind of guns being everywhere and like, you know, the shoot 'em up or some one of those kind of modern films or Die Hard yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, it's a moment of vulnerability. Like I think now if you, if you watch it, a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be too into this movie, they'd say like, oh, it's just, you know, it's not that scary, you know, but like, if you think about it, if you've ever been in a shower and been worried, it's probably because you saw this movie, any movie since then that's done any sort of violence inherent in like a character's taking a shower and there's like a killer a prowling, there's a lot of, you know, slasher film movies that do this where a character's showering. That's directly because of this movie. This movie was kind of the first of its kind to feature a character in a bathroom, in a vulnerable situation, you know, literally being like uh, assaulted and literally penetrated by some brooding figure. It's, it's quite disturbing and scary. And I think, um, even rewatching it again, um, it's still very scary. Like just like the sound cue, the way the looming shot where we see the figure come into the frame. I mean, it's very, it's very like, even when you've seen the movie a hundred times, you know what's going to happen. It's still, you're on edge. And I think I can just imagine movie audiences in 1960 if they were watching this, you know, losing their absolute shit. And I've never seen the, the 2012 biopic Hitchcock, but I, I believe there's a scene where they actually show like the audience reaction when she peers with the with the knife and everyone's just like popcorn flying, like screaming, lose their mind. Um, I remind I'm reminded it's not the same thing, but I, I think of the movie, uh, the M Night Shyamalan movie Signs, where we get the brief moment where the alien walks past the frame. I saw that as a kid, and I like I almost like shat myself. Like, I've never been more scared watching a scene in my life. But if you rewatch that now, knowing what happens, it it's not at all scary. Like I, I don't really feel the same impact. But when you first watch that, um, you know, not knowing what to expect at all, you really do. You really like do freak out. And I think to its credit, you know, there's still a great visual horror in this scene, even if you know what's to come. And I think it's just so well done, especially, oh my God, the famous score, the score, the, the, the song is The Murder by Bernard Herrmann. Again, this scene was meant to be quiet, but Bernard Herrmann insisted to put the song into the movie and uh, to, into the scene. And to its credit, it makes it so much better. Um, the scene itself is about three minute scene. We get, I think Hitchcock uh, uh, had an interview with uh, Francois Truffaut, he said there was about 70 camera setups just for 45 seconds of footage. There's a lot of shots in the specific scene. It's it's quite, uh, it's it's the most dense, heavy shot scene in the entire film. Uh, it's about a three-minute scene. You get all the stabbings going on. In fact, the stabbings were actually stabbed. They recorded the Foley sound of uh, a knife stabbing of Melon. That's how they recorded the sound of the knife uh, stabbing her. We get the stabbing. She finally, like, famously slams against the wall, slides down reaches out for the shower curtains and collapses. And then, of course, as Quinn said, we get that. My God, watching this again today, like, how did they do that eye scene? Like, it's so, it's so good. Like, it looks like yeah. I'm watching, like, a, the, the detail. I know it's film, and, and film can famously be upscaled to, like, 4K. and 8K, But, like, I was watching, like, a, a shitty rip on my TV, and, like, it was pretty blocky, and it still looked, my God, incredible. I'm like, how did they, like, do this scene? Like, I, it's just, 
it's it's so impressive and i think there's just there's a part where she like slams against the floor and you can kind of see her breathe a bit but otherwise like credit to jenna lee because i think like she she's so she does she films this death so well and i think like uh, it's just the camera work is so impressive the way it focuses so close to her eye and, and peers out it's it's just yeah. really impressive work yeah and absolutely. also and famously of course the blood they used wasn't blood it was uh hershey's chocolate syrup because of course it's this movie was filmed in black and white. The chocolate syrup showed a bit better on camera and it worked a little bit better rather than like a fake blood, which would be a little bit too translucent. So uh, it's kind of funny to imagine watch this colorized with like brown <laughs> chocolate syrup everywhere. Uh, of course, it also wasn't a body double. They actually did use Janet Leah, but of course they actually filmed it in frame of the way to really hide and obfuscate the nudity. Um, she's actually wearing like a bunch of like pasties, body stockings. Um, so nothing really is revealed, even though when you watch it, you're kind of like... I rewatching my memory. I'm like, I remember it being a little bit more risque, but it really isn't. It's, it's, it's very a uh, bit conservative in the way it films. It. there's also of course, a lot of famous rumors, as I was saying, rumors and kind of legends involved with the scene. One of them is that apparently that people assume that, or, or have rumored that like Janet Leigh, when they filmed it, they actually cranked the water to be freezing cold. So that when she screamed, it was more authentic, uh, not actually true. And also there's also a lot of rumors that Saul Bass was the one who specifically directed the scene and that he had much more of involvement um, than otherwise, but you know, people who worked on this movie, the cast and crew actually dispute this. I think Janet Lee herself said, you know, I was screaming, I was getting stabbed. Hitchcock was like three feet in front of me on camera. So um, it's hard to disagree with that. Um, there's a lot of, again, we're getting into the visual themes and motifs. Again, there's sort of a theme of like, you know, the male kind of leering, leering, leering dominance of men who want to like a, victimize women in this movie. And I think, you know, this scene's kind of like kind of the climax of that where we're literally getting this, this, this character coming and assaulting her. It's also a pretty shocking moment because this is, I think, the first of its kind where kind of a main protagonist was really murdered and killed off halfway through the movie. I forgot to mention that when this, well, we're going to get to it when this movie released, um, the advertising campaign by Hitchcock was that there's a policy like no one can be admitted late into the theater. So if you didn't show up at the start of the movie, you weren't allowed in. And it's specifically because you wanted people to actually, you know, see the entire story, see like watch Marion Crane's kicker from beginning to end. You think she's kind of going to be the, you know, she's billed as kind of the main uh, person in this movie, but she's killed off halfway. And, it, you know, any any movie since then that's showed a character, a main character had been kind of axed off or killed off halfway, oh, directly owes this to this movie. Even something like I was thinking of something like a deep, it was a deep blue sea where like Samuel Jackson's character gets eaten by like an alligator halfway through. And you're like, oh my God, I thought you seen the main character. I mean, that's kind of like a little bit of a silly uh, homage, a little bit to Psycho. And, um, there, there's a sort of he's literally, yeah. he's literally standing there outside and like the shark <laughs> just jump like conveniently jumps out of the water like free willy style and like takes him out and then goes right back into the water and you're it's like out of nowhere from the top rope oh. <laughs> yeah this yeah, i don't it, know if this is like yeah karma for like jurassic park or like something but the, yeah like that was like one of the first like times i ever seen like you know like the black character die first like i don't know i'm just yeah. gonna say it like it's like it's just it, it, i don't know that start sort of started a trend i'm sure it did yeah and uh lay and hitchcock have talked a little bit about kind of the themes of this movie specifically kind of in this scene there's sort of it's sort of like film is sort of like a baptism you know preceding this marianne crane is like repenting for her sin she's realizing i have to go back return this money you know i've, I've committed this horrible crime um, and this is sort of in a way it's kind of filmed they've discussed this kind of filmed as a way as like she's being she goes in the shower we get like the water dripping over her and she's like washing over herself it feels very calming I mean she's been driving all night so she probably really she's probably, she's probably pretty stinky she probably needed to shower bad uh, but uh, you know it's the water itself is almost like a purifying 
sort of presence corrupt, you know, purifying the corruption in her mind and evil in her soul, but that's taken away from her from this sort of looming devilish figure um, in the midst. Anyways, that's the shower scene, probably like a top five scene in all of movies. Um, and Hitchcock is no stranger to that. There's so many scenes in his uh, uh, filmography that have been, you know, famously parodied and showed again. I think of, I think it's North by Northwest, the, air, the airplane flying. And there's so many other scenes in his movies that have been uh, done elsewhere, but this is probably the most popular and most famous of them. Um, so moving onward, Marion Crane has been killed by this figure. Norman Bates runs in. He looks, he's shocked, he's horrified by what's happened. Uh, but he really kind of quietly composes himself and begins to clean up the room, you know, wipe up the blood, mop everything. Um, he puts his body and her belongings in a truck, bags it up, and he drives the car into the swamp. And so that's sort of like the ending of the first half of this movie. Skip ahead one week later. We now, uh, we see a woman enter this sort of... Uh, um, this office, this cafe, um, and we find out that this woman who's played by Vera Miles is Lila Crane, who is Marion Crane's sister. It's been one week later. She's actually confronting, um, you know, uh, Marion's fuck buddy, as I'll put it, uh, Sam Loomis, and saying, like, you know, what's going on? Where is my sister? What's going on? He, he doesn't know what's going on. Uh, we find out uh, from Lila that, you know, her sister's been missing for a week. Uh, she disappeared. And we, we actually meet uh, a private investigator, Arbogast, who shows up. We find out that he's been hired. Uh, by um, by the real estate uh, company that she works for to, to retrieve the money. We find out, of course, in the narrative of this film at this point, that we do find out that she's actually stolen the money and has fled, and you know she's disappeared, and we don't know what's happened to her. So, um, you know, P.I. Arbogast, played by Martin Balsam, he's a really cool figure in this. He's so smart. Like, I really like how I really like my like movie investigators to actually be really intelligent. And like, he pretty much just gets everything right away. He like he speaks to them. He says he finds out that she spent a night at the Bates Motel. He drives over there. He uh, confronts Norman, and it's such a great scene where he's confronting Norman Bates. Norman Bates just like wilts like a flower. He doesn't even like he's just like speaking over himself. He's like, "Well, I thought like you said you haven't had anybody, but you actually had so." And like he's just like, ah, blah, 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 and he's just stuttering, and he, you know, he just looks guilty as hell. Um, he learns that uh, Marion actually spoke to Norman's mom. He says, "Like, can I speak to Norman's mom? Like, can I speak to your mom?" He says, "No, no, no, you can't speak to her." Um, he calls Sam and Lila back up. Smart move on his part. He calls them and says, "Like, you know," he says he spoke to Norman. He says he finds out that. You know, she was speaking to his mother. He says, like, I'm going to go find Norman's mother and kind of confront her about what's going on. Um, so he, he decides to enter the Norman Bates uh, house, the Bates, the Bates mansion, the Bates manor to go find his mother. And he goes up the stairs and we got a great quick jump stabbing scene where this figure once again appears. I actually think, you know, people talk about famously the shower scene as being kind of the ultimate scary scene. I actually think this scene is almost just as scary. And I always forget about this scene when I watch this movie. And I like, I think I rewatched this uh, over a year ago for the first time in many years. I had totally forgotten about the scene. And I almost like spilled my drink when this happened because it's so sudden. She just like pops out of the room. The way it's filmed from above, again, we get that great like kind of rectangular framing. We see him going up a staircase. I, my, the audience at home can't see, but I'm actually mocking it with my hands. And she just kind of emerges out of nowhere from a room and with a knife. And it's so, it's so well done and so sudden. It's a real great jump scene, jump scare in the way we get her stabbing him and he's kind of falling down the staircase. It's filmed very well. I think he's on like a rope kind of being lowered down to the, um, to the, to the sets. And um, yeah, so Arbogast is killed once again by this mysterious shadowy figure. Um, so Sam and Lyle, of course, they don't hear back. But I think Arbogast said like, I'm going to go find them and like, I'll get back to you in like 24 hours or, or there's a time frame. Uh, Sam and Lila don't hear back. So they're like, you know what, let's go, let's go investigate. Let's go ourselves and figure out what's going on. Um, they, uh, Sam drives over to the Bates Motel. When he's there, he actually sees um, Norman's mom in the window, kind of looming. And he's like, what's going on? And he sees, um, he sees Norman kind of pick her up and move her and move her into, we find out, is the cellar in the basement of the manor. Um, Sam and Lila, of course, then contact the sheriff. 
because uh, they're like, we found Norman's mom. We have to go talk to her. Where's, you know, P.I. Arbogast? They find out from the sheriff. And this is sort of the sudden, the plot twist, the plot drop. We find out that Norman's mom is not alive, but that she actually had died uh, a decade earlier in a strange murder-suicide. Quite shocking. They're obviously quite sketched out. They, uh, you know, the sheriff believes that Arbogast, you know, must have lied. He must have went and found Marion to kind of pursue the money for himself. But, you know, they're nonetheless, they're very sketched out. They think there's something seriously going on. They decide to head to the motel itself. Um, they split up. It's very smart. I mean, the characterization in this, I think Sam and Lila, you know, the P.I. Arbogast is quite smart in his investigation, but I think Sam and Lila are quite smart too, the way that they, you know, they kind of, you know, it's not like a dumb slasher where it's like, oh, let's go check the shadowy room. Like there, there is an intelligence to what they're doing. Lila's like, I'm actually going to go upstairs check up the hotel you confront norman bates so sam confronts norman and uh norman knocks sam unconscious uh it's a great scene where lila's in the manor and, and she looks out the window and you see norman running up and you know freaks out she runs into the cellar norman runs into the house she goes in the cellar and she she, she sees the mom we see the back of the mom sitting there and she walks up walks up and goes to spin the mom around and it turns around and it's a corpse. It's, Norman Bates, mom. it's so scary. Even today, like it's such a creepy looking corpse and it's a great little yeah, it's all desiccated and rotting and gross. Yeah. <laughs> and mummified, reading, mummified basically. Yeah. This mummified corpse and reading again, the production notes of this, of how this was shot and filmed. Um, it was actually a little bit of a, a blooper where like she spins around and the light kind of the light bulb gets flicked in. We see it kind of go back and forth and it gets this kind of throbbing shadowy effect that actually wasn't supposed to happen in that scene, but um, it was sort of a little accident that happened and they kept it in anyways. And then we great again moment. She turns around and we see the shadowy figure this whole time has been Norman Bates himself wearing his mom's dress, wearing her wig and the knife. He's there. She does the big, you know, scream queen scream. He mm. goes to approach her to, to murder her. But Sam appears out of nowhere. He's come back to life. He was knocked unconscious. But hey, I guess, you know, movie logic characters get knocked out and come back without any uh, repercussions. He grabs her. He thwarts her. And again, the score in this is so good. Uh, Cut to later, we're finally in the end of this movie. Um, Norman is now in police custody. We're at the uh, the police office. We actually get finally like narrative confirmation. Again, we know we, there's a bit of dramatic irony. We know what's been happening a lot of this whole time. We know everything that's happened with Marion, but our characters don't. Um, Lila gets confirmation that her sister has, in fact, been murdered by Norman Bates. Dr. Richmond, played by Simon Oakland, he talks about Norman Bates himself, that he actually he has this sort of split personality where he kind of flips towards this mother figure who's jealous. And when he's, when he's in, in the midst of kind of an attractive woman, his mother personality takes over with this jealousy and hatred. Uh, we find out that Norman actually had murdered his own mom a decade prior and that he had been jealous of her and, you know, her, his mom had been this like violent domineering woman. Um, he then dug up her body and brought it home and he treats her like she's still alive. And it's such a great scene because again, this is sort of described as sort of a, I'm going to get jump ahead of psychoanalytical thriller. It's not just like a, a killer that appears in nowhere. It's, there's a little bit of kind of like a, a psychology thing going on. And there's a great scene where he actually kind of really describes kind of the thought process of Norman. We get like these police officers who are like, oh, so Norman Bates is a transvestite. He wears women's clothing. He's like, well, no, he's not a transvestite. He actually has, he actually truly believes that. He, and it's it's like, I mean, uh, it's kind of a little woke because the movie's really kind of playing a little bit into kind of gender politics, gender dynamics and psychology. And it's, it's I, I thought this was kind of a really interesting scene where it's really kind of giving kind of, um, you know, context for why Norman acted the way he did. And again, we find out again that the characters find out themselves that there really was no motivation for what happened. There wasn't any sort of motivation that, you know, we think that Norman, they think Norman might've killed her to take the money, but the money was never recovered. Again, we saw earlier, Marion shoved it in a suitcase. The money's lost. This is ultimately just a crime of passion. 
And uh, we get the final great scene where Norman Bates is stewing in his cell. We hear his mom's voice out loud speaking, saying, uh, you know, oh, they think I'm this horrible killer, but like, I'm not the one like, oh, and there's the fly lands at him. He's like, well, I'm not even going to hurt this fly. And like, and, and we get him staring up and smiling at the camera and, and it pans the camera then transitions towards the cars being pulled out of the water. And it's a little great little subtle moment where we get the kind of creepy smiling Norman staring at the camera, confirmation that he actually is this true psychopathic person. Mm-hmm. And when it transitions to the car, you can actually see like kind of like a weird translucent skull. Uh, we kind of noticed that watching it again, if you rewatch it and, and see at that moment when it's transitioning from Norman's face to the water, you can see this quick little skull appearing uh, it's kind of creepy i don't know i don't really know the true visual significance i guess it's just sort of meant to heighten kind of the horror of the moments but and um, it kind of reminds me of uh, a little bit because uh, i know you like this franchise a lot john but it reminds me of friday the 13th a little bit too you know yeah. jason and his mother you know and they're keeping the rotting head and everything too <laughs> oh man and i i mean we're gonna we're gonna talk about influences and i mean <laughs> friday the 13th framing with you know you know jason's mom and sort of the dynamics of that that would continue even after his mm. mom wasn't a character in the, in the movies i think that really is meant to be like a reference to psycho norman and his own mother it's playing into kind of the the weird kind of mother-son dynamic and kind of mm. uh how that you know is often projected into kind of you know you know creepy violent men and kind of the weird fixations on kind of women and kind of the mother and that sort of dynamic so that's psycho that's that's the movie psycho um what a what a great movie i'm gonna a little talk we'll talk a bit about our opinions on it i got a lot to say but just talking a little bit about kind of the legacy of it first of all this is movie um french critic serge uh kaganowski called this the first psychoanalytical thriller you know the shower scene is terrifying for anyone but certainly as a woman because again you're watching marion earlier in the movie she's portrayed wearing a bra it's it's filmed to be sort of honestly kind of like erotic and titillating if you're a man like it's meant to be you're meant to be amorous attracted to her and it, again if you're it's really meant to put to the, to the two you know audiences in two contexts where as a man you're watching this kind of male gaze being uh you know portrayed on this woman and her being victimized and you're put, put into the visual role as an actual potential rapist and if you're a woman you're again you're sympathizing with her you're seeing her as this victim of this of this attack and again a lot of horror movies and slashes come really kind of lean into kind of you know knives is almost like a phallic weapon certainly i was watching um friday the 13th part two a few weeks ago and there's so many scenes where you get the long man's arm holding this like long knife and it's very much framed in a way where it's almost like a a phallic symbol but any sort of framing in that regard in terms of themes like that is again reference to this movie um one of my favorites you know Slavoj Zizek you know the philosopher academic in his little documentary The Pervert's Guide to the Cinema which is sort of a movie talking about kind of psychosexual elements in film he actually describes the Bates Mansion as kind of actually representing kind of uh, Freudian psychoanalysis we have the top floor the uh I believe that's the super ego that's um where we have Norman Bates, his mom is there. So Norman Bates, his mother is kind of existing in the superego. The main level of the floor, that's where Norman Bates himself lived. That's the ego. And then we have the at the bottom. And famously, the mother transitions from the top, the superego down to the bottom where she's the corpse. That's really where we find the id of Norman Bates' psycho, psychopathic behaviors. And, and, and that's really kind of existing in its mind. I thought that was kind of a really interesting analysis on this. Um, so in terms of how this movie released, it was first released in New York City. Again, as I mentioned earlier, I spoiled ahead. There was this cool no late policy where like there's these posters like with Alfred Hitchcock like looking at his clock, his finger on the clock. And I think they would have like a blank spot where they would the, the theaters would rate the time. It's like, if you do not show up at this time, you will not be able to watch Psycho. And it's really, I think as a marketing campaign, that's pretty cool. It reminds me of, you know, movies to decades to come. We talked a little bit about paranormal activity. A lot, a lot of movies and horror movies have a 
specific kind of advertising campaigns about like you have to see this in the theaters or, or stuff like that and i think it's kind of cool how that movie was uh, playing into those little theatrical kind of release uh, tropes like that um there's also a really great trailer for this movie hitchcock famously in his movie trailers he kind of takes the audience along on this little lesson where he talks to the, the crew hitchcock very much had a had a bit of an ego to him he's kind of like a character in all of his movies himself he puts himself kind of first in in his movie i mean you know his his own TV series was Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He's kind of a character of himself, but it's a really great trailer. It's kind of jovial and fun where he's actually walking through the set of the Bates Hotel and the Manor. And he's kind of like, there's a great moment where he walks in the hotel. He's just like, or the, the house where he's like, oh my goodness, this is where it happened. The, the deaths, the kill, up the staircase. I, I can't even talk about it. I'm too disturbed. And it's so, it's so funny. It's so campy, but it's, you know, it really gets you hooked on it. You're like, oh my God, what happened? What's the mystery here? And then it kind of really quickly cuts to a shower curtain being open and Marion Crane screaming. Although the actress in that trailer, they actually swapped, Jan they couldn't get Janet Leigh to be in the trailer, I guess. So they actually filmed Vera Miles wearing a short hair wig to be, you know, playing her sister. So if you actually watch the trailer, you're like, that's not even the same character. It's, it's, it's the sister, but it, it's kind of funny there. Um, this movie, of course, was initially rated M um, when it was released, um, but it was, uh, you know, retroactively, this movie was actually like a PG rating. So in years to follow, it would be updated to a rated R. Um, what's cool is when you, when you think about old movies, they would oftentimes get like kind of this very long release cycles where they would tour around the country and they would be in theaters for like over a year, but then you wouldn't be able to see them again until, you know, they would later be aired on TV if that. So yeah, you know, this... it's, it's so, it's so weird to think about that. Eh? Like the pre kind of VHS days and, you know, now we can stream everything on pretty much every platform we're torrented. Yeah, but like, you yeah. know, there was a time where, you know, if you missed it on TV that one night, you know, that's it, you know, you won't see it for 20 years. And it's shocking yeah, and was, to think of it. Yeah. I was thinking even in, even in our lifetime, like uh, something like, when I was a kid, like you would see a movie in the theaters and then you would have mm. to wait like a year for it to come on tape. And it was like, if you didn't see it in the theaters, then you would have to wait yeah. like 12 months. And then it would be like now out on VHS. And it was usually like a very big, like there would be commercials everywhere, like now available on tape. And you know, nowadays, like even with Blu-ray and, and physical media like that, like you watch the theaters and like, you can, you can actually literally watch like a month later. And I mean, now, especially with the shutdowns, HBO, you're getting all this stuff half released in like streaming and half released on, on video, so the timelines have been shrunken quite a bit. Even in the years preceding, like um, in the last few years, we've seen like Blu-rays come out like four months later. It, it's it's crazy to think even our timelines how quickly that's shifted. But you know, this was in theaters in 1960s. It later ran again in 1968 in theaters. Um, this was actually supposed to be televised uh, on CBS in the 1960s. However, the night it was, or I think it was either the night or like the night before it was supposed to be aired, um, the daughter of an Illinois Senate candidate, Charles Percy, was found murdered. He had, she had actually been murdered in the same home. So there was this kind of huge buzz and they decided, oh, this movie wouldn't be appropriate to air uh, so soon after a tragedy. So it would eventually be broadcast in 1968 and later in the 1970s. Um, this movie, of course, has been released various formats on home video in the 70s and the early 80s. It was released on Laserdisc and tape um, in 98. It was released on DVD for the first time. And then 2010, it was 50th anniversary release on Blu-ray. And then just last year, literally a year ago, almost to the date, uh, uh, September 2020, it was released in 4K UHD Blu-ray. And so you can watch it in however beautiful quality you want. I got to admit, I watched the streaming. I think it was either on... Uh, it was either on Netflix or Amazon Prime. I watched streaming and the rip itself wasn't very good. Like it was kind of a lower quality stream. It still looked quite good, but uh, I would love to watch this on like a, you know, a true like 4K experience on Blu-ray because I think this movie would pop very well. Um, in terms of reception, it's interesting because this movie, when it came out, actually had a little bit of mixed reviews. People kind of saw it as being a very gimmicky. I mentioned how it had a lower budget. It was filmed with this TV crew. 
you know, audiences really interpreted it that way. They kind of thought it was even, you know, this movie is very much kind of gimmicky in the way it's framed and kind of the plot and the mystery dynamic. And it was sort of intentionally seen as that is sort of being a little gimmicky. Uh, but nonetheless, there were a lot of glowing positive reviews. You know, famously, uh, the Cahiers du Cinema, the French film magazine, ranked ninth, their ninth film in 1960. Uh, people praised kind of the performances and kind of the overall creative design. Um, that being said, you know, Hitchcock's movies, you know, famously did well, but didn't always do the top of box office. This is by far his biggest box office success. It made for its time $50 million to the box office, which you think a budget of under a million in 1960, that's an incredible amount of money. This made like, uh, that's like the equivalent of like a million dollar movie today making like, or like a $2 million movie today making like a hundred million. Like, like that's a pretty impressive haul, especially considering now the costs in years to come with like advertising and stuff like that takes up such a huger cost of the crunch of movies being released you know back then it wasn't really the same dynamic there um so this is by far and away the most cultural uh, commercially successful flick, flick of hitchcock's career um in terms of a legacy i mean well three years later you'd have like uh, the movie blood feast come out kind of like the first <laughs> splatter film and you'd have those kind of wave of uh, i can't remember the director's name but there was uh you know a lot of directors in like the 60s that to come would kind of release their own uh kind of like bloody slasher movies yeah, giallo maybe yeah kind of like a giallo inspired oh sorry i'm thinking of Hersh herschel gordon lewis who like you know oh, right. kind of, even kind of godfather, godfather of gore yeah <laughs> yeah even like his movies in the 50s are like way 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 gorier than psycho they're almost gorier than anything you'd see until like like peter jackson like it's crazy it's like, but like chronography yeah yeah exactly so you have like her, her herschel gordon lewis who kind of came you know he i mean he kind of precedes hitchcock's psycho a little bit but like his movies to come very much you know hitchcock would kind of create these wave of slashers in terms of awards this movie you know was nominated at the oscar for best director for hitchcock best uh, for cinematography for art direction um janet lay was also nominated for supporting actress uh, she actually won the golden globe uh, for supporting actress and this film also won the edgar Allan poe award for the best screenplay um 1992 was um preserved as the national film registry in the united states for you know important cinematic films it's also now a member of the uh, afi top 100 greatest films of all time and of course today it has a reputation as being this you know, when you read lists of like, what are the top 10 horror movies of all time, or the greatest horror movies of all time, this is almost always somewhere on the list. This is recognized as like a huge, huge cultural success. The shower scene, the weird narrative structure where the main character gets killed halfway through. This movie did it all. I, I can't think of another movie that we've talked about before this episode and other in our fan discussions or main focus that has had as much of an impact as this movie. Um, you know, this would, of course, have an impact, again, as I mentioned earlier on music with the staccato horror strings, the instrumentation that would be in later slashers. This really kind of set off the birth of the slasher genre. Movies to come directly influence or directly cite Psycho as being an influence. Uh, 1974's The Phantom of Paradise and a movie that we're going to talk about next episode. Spoiler. Uh, 1978's Halloween. Janet Leigh's daughter herself plays the main character in Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis. And of course, the name Sam Loomis, the, the fuck buddy of Janet Leigh in this, is the name of the doctor main character in, in Halloween. And, you know, John Carpenter himself, you know, cited, John Carpenter himself cited a Halloween, um, which came out, you know, 18 years after Psycho as, you know, cited, cited Psycho as being a really important influence on Halloween and even Halloween itself you think about you know think about coaching trees like in the NFL you have like a head coach with like assistants and they go on to have jobs and this movie is like a huge coaching tree of like 
you know, Halloween and all the movies inspired by Halloween and the ilk. Um, 1980s, the Brian De Palma film, I think it's Brian De Palma, Dressed to Kill, that's very much inspired by Psycho and Scream itself too, the 96 meta horror by Wes Craven, very much uh, influenced as well by Psycho. I mean, this movie has just influences all, all over the place. A little bit of Texas really... Chainsaw Massacre, that's more the Ed Gain directly maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think if you look at a lot of horror movies released in the 70s and 80s, I think if you look at the big ones, the most critically acclaimed ones, I think you could probably almost find a scene or shot that's directly influenced or by this movie. Um, I mean, this became an iconic role for Anthony Perkins. I mean, he's a really interesting um, actor to learn about, you know, because famously, you know, he was a closeted actor. He had he had married and had a had a family and he had like a very lasting film legacy. But of course, um, his life kind of tragically ended early. He uh, died of AIDS at a very young age in, in the early 90s. But he would go on. He wasn't he managed to kind of avoid being typecast, but he did uh, go on to kind of this kind of became his kind of recognizable film role. And he would, of course, um, later play in the Psycho sequels, which I didn't really know much about the Psycho sequels, but I, I found out that these are actually have kind of a little bit of a cult popularity to them, specifically Psycho 2, which came out in 83, which is sort of like, um, from what I, when I can tell is that this film has actually, Psycho 2 has actually built a little bit of kind of a cult following of people who actually think it's quite a great horror movie and kind of like a little, I guess a little bit of like a meta horror movie comparative to Psycho, where it kind of, once again, kind of leads into kind of like Norman Bates is kind of a sympathetic character, you know, exploring his own psychopathy and stuff like that. Um, Psycho 2 was a huge success um, and would later be Psycho 3 in 86 as a sequel. And then a later, a, a TV movie, Psycho 4, which came out. There was also a, an 87 spinoff TV movie, uh, Bates Motel. And famously, of course, in the recent years, in the 2010s, there was a Bates Motel TV series, kind of like the Norman, uh, the Norman Bates origin story. Where did he come from? And it's kind of cool. So this movie had kind of a kind of a lasting commercial legacy with various merchandise uh, spinoff films and stuff like that. And of course, as we talked a little bit about offhand, I think Curtis, you mentioned 1998 Gus Van Sant did a shot for shot remake. I don't know if you guys have seen that. I have. And people hate that movie. I actually <laughs> think it's a really interesting, bizarre movie because, again, it is filmed almost like shot for shot remake of Psycho with, of course, a different cast, you know, uh, Vince Vaughn playing Norman Bates, uh, you know, Anne Hesch playing Marion Crane. It's a little bit more gory and there's a little bit more nudity, but it's also weird because it's filmed in color. So it changes so much. Again, Psycho is filmed in black and white. When you film intentionally in black and white, it changes the way things are shot. So say, for instance, the famous shower scene in the, the Gus Van Sant movie, it's quite bloody and we see these deep reds everywhere and just the scene of him cleaning up the blood is so interesting as a result. People hate that movie. They think it sucks ass. I actually think it's kind of like a weird, campy work of genius. That's my opinion, though. I kind of want to watch it, yeah. It's a really I interesting movie. On tape, actually. I, I still have to watch it. Yeah, and I think I actually watched, uh, my parents had that on tape and I think I watched the remake before I ever saw this one. I'm just trying to parse when I saw this in my memory, but I remember seeing that remake. My parents owned it and I don't think they owned this one on tape and I think I actually watched the remake before I saw this which I think there's probably a lot of kind of like 90s kids and stuff like that who probably would have maybe watched kind of the Gus Van Sant one before they seen this so if you have seen the 90s one and maybe if you liked it if you really liked it or if you didn't but you thought it was cool I would still recommend checking out this movie because again this movie still very much holds up and then 2012 there was a uh, Hitchcock biopic released uh, kind of detailing Hitchcock's life and career and it kind of explores like his wife's involvement in his uh, film filmography and you know psycho plays like a very big part of that movie as well too um let's talk a bit about our rating now what we think of this movie um quinn this is your canon choice what are your thoughts on this movie and uh, what's your rating man honestly um like i said earlier psycho means a lot to me uh just the overall shots um i i find it's a good length and it it holds up in uh it doesn't, it doesn't bore you. And I've watched it enough times. 
um, for it to, to bore me, but it doesn't. Um, I find it holds up really well still. It's still, like I said before, it still gives me the shivers. Um, I think the acting is really well done. The lighting um, for a black and white movie is like one of the best. Like, uh, like I said, uh, the driving scene with Janet Leigh, you can tell that they used a light just to sort of spotlight her face and uh, her eyes just take over the screen. And it's kind of a shame that, you know, we lose her, you know, about 48 minutes into the movie. Um, but Anthony Perkins, yeah, he's just phenomenal in this movie um, as Norman Bates and the mother, if you will. Uh, the, the ending scene, uh, well, closer to the end, when you hear him running in with the, the mother's sort of look on the wig on, uh, Bernard Herrmann's score is just magnificent. Um, this is the easiest by far uh, since we started this podcast, by far the easiest five out of five I've given. Uh, this is one of the greatest films ever made. Definitely one of the greatest horror films ever made. Considering that it was made in 1960, Alfred Hitchcock was, he changed the world. He changed the game film. Uh, so much influence, like you said, all those movies. Uh, I know Hitchcock is a huge influence to heavy hitters like Spielberg, uh, Kubrick, the, the list goes on and on. So definitely a five out of five for me. And uh, definitely check this movie out if you haven't. Cool. Uh, Curtis, what are your thoughts? Um, well, to be honest, I, I don't want to be a Bobby Buzzkill, but it, I mean, it was, it's not my favorite uh, Hitchcock film. I think I think the problem is I came to Psycho too late in the game. I mm. I came to it, you know, after I'd watched all of his other ones, too, and I'd seen a gazillion horror movies. I think, you know, watching it in 1960, I think that would have been a, an amazing experience, you know, kind of like going to see Star Wars in cinemas, too, and you know, that shower scene, too. I mean, it's so iconic. And I think what I really uh, like most about Psycho is not the film itself, but the, what it gave to other films too, like you, we were talking yeah. about too. Um, I think what I do like about the film is that I love kind of how it plays around with kind of these uh, narrative tropes. So you, yeah. you have a kind of false protagonist, you know, you have the character getting killed off in the shower and it's shocking because, you know, you think she's going to be our protagonist. You think she's going to make it to the end, but you know, she's, she's no final girl. She gets killed off in the first kind of section of the movie too. But yeah, I just, I found, uh, I, th I found the pacing quite slow. Uh, Anthony Perkins did a great job too, but I think, you know, the revelation at the end, I really liked too. But I, I think compared to other Hitchcock films, I liked, uh, I liked The Birds a lot more as a horror film. And I love, obviously I like, uh, my favorites are Rear Window and, uh, and Vertigo, obviously. I love those ones too. So I think just compared to his other ones, I think his other ones are stronger, but I can see like, why it was so important too. But it, it wasn't my favorite of Hitchcock's films personally. What did you think? Cool. Uh, just for for audience sake, I heard it, Curtis gave it a three out of five. You know, pretty good. You know, it's a good score, fair score. Uh, I, it's interesting because I again, um, I, I watched this for this, of course, for this episode. I rewatched this movie, uh, I believe, last Halloween or last October, and at that point, I had not seen this movie in many, many, many years. So it kind of been when I think about my reaction to this movie now, I, I kind of go back to watching it last year because again, I've been away from it for a long time. Uh, rewatching it, I thought that you know it wouldn't hold up the same way but i gotta say i think this movie does incredibly hold up i think a credit is to again two things the score well actually many things but first of all the score the herman bernard the bernard herman score in this is phenomenal the strings it's so 
it's so catchy and I'm, I'm going to put the score in again for intro and outro. And I actually already took the audio snippets. It's, it's so, it sounds so cool. And I'm, I'm excited to put that in, but the score in this is so great. It let it let a last left a lasting legacy. It's so, there's so many great underrated songs too. Like just like the, this, the music when she's escaping the city, the kind of like the kind of quiet harmonizing strings and even the ending, like there's so many great little, the overall score in this is so great. Like people point out like the shower scene and stuff like that, but like the overall, it's overall so well done and it really meshes well with the, the filming of this movie. Hitchcock's framing again I'm not a big Hitchcock head I like is what I've seen but I haven't seen all of his stuff I really love the visual elements of this movie I love how things are obfuscated I love how he uses the general dynamic kind of uh, geography there's so many characters there's, there's such a depth of feel to this movie like characters walk in and towards you and it, you, you get there's a really great sense of 3D space in this movie uh the characters themselves are so well done Janet Leigh is so great in this like she's such like a great a sympathetic character but like she's so smart and interesting and even I mean, Anthony Perkins is so great. Like he's so young in this. I couldn't, I just cannot shake how young he is. I think I just muted myself in excitement. Oh my God. But uh, <laughs> he's so great in this and uh, the plot twist, even knowing the plot twist, even knowing what's to come, there's so many great little scary sequences. Um, the mystery of itself is still really interesting again. Cause again, Hitchcock really wanted people to know that this is kind of like a mystery movie. We don't really know everything that's ha that's, that's happening until the end. Um, and obviously if you, if you follow pop culture, it's kind of like, oh, the mystery of who Darth Vader is, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we all know that, but oh my God, it's just, it's such a good visual movie. I, I, I put it on and I was watching for, the, for this podcast and like my girlfriend was nearby and, I, and she's like, oh, I'll probably just like be on my phone. I won't be really paying attention. Like you can watch it, whatever. And she watched like the whole thing. Like she had her phone now. She's like, we were just like focused the entire time on this movie, which is a credit because I find with a lot of, uh, maybe it's just a sign of really, uh, I become too Twitter brain, but I find sometimes I have a hard time really like focusing but like this movie even though it's it's what almost 60 years old now like it's just so it's so it's so catchy it's so beautiful to watch and it is really disturbing the ending is just it's just so great how it's like at the end of the day this was just an event i, I thought about watching this rewatching. like if vera miles hadn't pulled over to fall asleep on the side of the road or sorry not vera miles if if marion crane hadn't pulled over sleep at the side of the road at the beginning of this movie like she would have survived she would have never had to pull in and go to bed at the Bates motel and like none of this would have happened and frankly Norman Bates would have probably went on killing people. We find out, I forgot to mention the plot details, they find out he actually murdered like two or three other women as well too. So it's like this really kind of sense of, you know, just terrible luck and chance. It's like, it made, it made me think well, after watching this movie, I, I always say really great movies, all movies have an impact on your heart and soul, but I think really great movies do as well. They leave a little bit of nugget. And, and after watching this, I'm like, there are people out there right now who are literally Norman Bates. There are people out there who are probably disturbing killers that we have no idea about. There's people out there who might be might there might be Bates motels all across Canada and the United States. And for all we know, they haven't been discovered yet. And it's, it's so quite disturbing to think about even to this day. Um, I, it's funny because I think I've, this is like my third or fourth, like five out of five in a row, but we've just talked about some banger movies recently. We watched God King Assault on Precinct 13. What a freaking awesome movie. Um, and then we watched this one. This is a five out of five for me. It's a great movie. Um, I know it's maybe it's a little bit boring for our audience that we're just like this, all these movies are great, but I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about classic movies, canon movies, ones we like, so we're going to be pretty high on them. And uh, yeah, five out of five for me. Awesome, awesome movie. So now we're getting into the what we watched this week. And uh, I think maybe this will be notes for ourselves. Uh, I think we've been talking now for an hour and a half, so we, maybe we will uh, separate it out, but we'll see. Um, Quinn, why don't you go first? What did you, uh, what did you watch this week? Well, the first movie I watched this week was Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy with Robert De Niro. I had heard about this movie for so long and how it influenced movies like Joker recently with Joaquin Phoenix. 
and uh, a few other ones. So I decided to give it a whirl and uh, good film. Good, 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 good movie. Disturbing. Uh, and honestly, Todd Phillips stole from this for Joker <laughs> almost shot for shot. Same with Dex sort of, Driver. It's just a derivative yeah. asshole. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, it's, it's funny because um, De Niro is in Joker, right? He is in Joker. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And he is playing very tongue in cheek, uh, yeah. Yeah, sort of a David Letterman, Jay Leno type late night show host. Uh, but yeah, the, the, <laughs> yeah, the king of comedy has like, oh man, wicked shots, uh, really awkward, like have to close one eye and sort of tilt your head back scenes. Um, it's funny, uh, funny when it's funny in an inappropriate sort of way and in, in an odd way, but um, it was in my book. What's it about? I've actually never seen. Uh, I've never seen it. No, okay, you got to you got to check this out. So, <laughs> uh, it's about a uh, Robert De Niro, and he is like desperate for fame. Mm-hmm. His name's Rupert Pupkin in it. Pupkin, and he's a comic, and he like he craves attention, and he just wants to be like really famous. And in it, um, Jerry Lewis is a tv show host and a really famous one people love him there's sort of a scene where jerry walks out to his car and sort of beatles style there's all these fans that are going crazy for him and they're trying to get into his car uh you know to even touch his hand or whatever and de niro sort of manipulates his way to get into his car and he's like just get the taxi driver or the driver to drive just hear my story out so like they're driving through the city of New York and he's like, I'm a huge fan of yours. If I give you my card, is there any way I can get on your show? Is there anything that I can do? And he's like, get away from me, creeper kind of thing. <laughs> so like, but it's like, it's odd. Like it's really awkward because like it shows De Niro at home and he has like cardboard cutouts of Jerry Lewis's character. And he's like talking to him as if he has his own, like has his own sort of uh, talk show. And he's like, like, he's like, what was that? What did you say? <laughs> you think I'm hilarious. That's so funny. <laughs> and he's pretending like he's sort of like Jimmy Fallon. But yeah, I swear to God, it's like Joker ripped it off completely. That sounds, have, yeah. It's a wicked movie. Scorsese, probably other than like Mean Streets and a few other ones, like probably it's up there with Scorsese's most underrated films. Yeah. Uh, definitely check out The King of Comedy. The next movie I watched was another De Niro film, uh, Once Upon a Time in America. Now, for those who haven't seen Once Upon a Time in America, it is a long movie. It's like four mm-hmm. hours long, three hours and 50 minutes. Yeah, it's the uncut one. that's the uncut one, isn't it? The uncut oh, wow, that's, that's what's quite long. Yeah, directed by Sergio it's great. It's Leone, great. Uh, who also did um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And... Uh, it's about uh, De Niro is a Jewish gangster who returns to Manhattan after 30 years where he once um, he once lived there and he grew up. So he kind of goes back and he has to confront like the ghosts of his past. And he uh, it's 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 an often really sad movie. And it just goes to show you how fast you can you can grow up and the ups and downs of somebody's life. But it's it's really neat because it just shows him sort of 
taking a train back to New York and it shows the train station, how it's evolved over the 30 years. And, you know, he, he goes back to see old friends and some old friends have passed away and that gets into the story. I won't spoil it too much, but um, very, very good picture with some like tremendous, tremendous uh, camera work and very, very New York and very prohibition era New York style shots. Oh, cool. Influenced cool. a million movies. I know, uh, I know it's one of Tarantino's favorite. So I kind of, it kind of gets swept out of the carpet too. I'm really glad you brought yeah. it up because I find, you know, Sergio Leone so celebrated, but like, I find that movie yeah. kind of, you don't, they don't really get talked about as much. Yeah. yeah it's it's mostly shame. his man with no name trilogy gets all of the attention, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. But uh, yeah, Sergio Leone, he just had this really interesting way of um, using similar to Hitchcock in a way, I suppose, uh, he just had this sort of way to tell the story just by shots and um, very, very like it's once upon a time in America, it's very, uh, it's happy. It's sad. It's, 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 it's actually sort of a, it's sort of a sexy movie too. It's very, very well done. Um, definitely check that out. I remember those scenes at the end too, with the opium dens too. That's, that yeah. was kind of cool. Yeah, no, and there there is also elements of shock and surprise too in in that movie too. There is a couple of sort of murder scenes that you're like you're really caught off guard <laughs> by it. But uh, it the, the only problem is, is I I watched it in like three or four um, sort of like we'll, we'll we'll say episodes. I watched it over a couple of days because you just it, have no it, choice time wise. <laughs> yeah, it it can get sort of boring and can get slow, but you have to appreciate the the art of it all mm. and uh definitely uh definitely a fantastic movie um i also watched rat race yes. with the heavy heavy hitting lineup uh all-star similar- cast yeah it really is an all-star oh, cast damn huge like john cleese cuba gooding jr amy smart uh uh john lovitz brecklin meyer Yes, like it, the list goes on and on. And Smash and, uh, Mouth. <laughs> and yeah, and, and Smash Mouth. by the, the ultra-talented Smash Mouth. The now but, memeable band, but you know, they were popular back then. People liked them unironically, so. Huge. And of course, John Cleese. We can't forget John Cleese. Oh, he's great. so good. Oh my God. I love Wonderful. But yeah, for those who haven't seen Rat Race, it's basically, uh, I think it's like six or seven strangers. They go into this Las Vegas hotel and casino and each of them gamble for their own different reasons uh, at slot various slot machines throughout the casino they all get a uh, a token that says see guest services for a once in a once in a lifetime opportunity they end up going into the room john cleese's character he owns the hotel and he's like um x amount of miles from here is a city called silver city new mexico and if you go to the train station there there's a lockbox each one of you gets a key first person to the lockbox and opens it up. There's a bag inside the bag. There's a, a cash prize of $2 million go. And it's essentially a ripoff of it's a mad, 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 mad world where you have a bunch of characters. Uh, they find out about a fortune and they go for the prize. First one for the prize wins the money. The funny thing about rat race is 
Oh my god, I've seen it fifty times. I There's already so much forget. stuff in that movie. It's so like it's an ADD's person's dream. It's <laughs> yeah. like it's constant different laughs. It's Seth Green. It's there's there's con everyone is going through their own sort of personal problems. You know, uh, Whoopi Goldberg's in it. Whoopi Goldberg and her daughter. They haven't, had, they haven't had contact in years, mm-hmm. so they're sort of patching up their long lost relationship. Seth Green has his brother with this tongue piercing, and his tongue piercing is infected. The guy can't even speak a fucking word throughout the movie. So that's hilarious. <laughs> in itself. Rowan Atkinson has this sleep disorder where Ooh, he falls yeah. asleep. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., he is a NFL referee who blew this yeah. game. So people who recognize him, they like want to kill him and want to hurt him. So one thing leads to another. He ends up driving this bus and lies. And, yeah, full of Lucy's that are going to an I Love Lucy convention. <laughs> convention. It's just an absolute shit show of a film. Uh, John Lovitz is driving his family and he's not telling them where he's going and what he's doing it for, for selfish reasons. They end up going to a Barbie museum because his daughter has to get out of the hot car. And it ends up being a goddamn Nazi museum. <laughs> uh, I remember having, This was so funny. Yeah, oh my God. They end up having to bail and they take Hitler's car. They go down the street and his wife finds Eva Braun's lipstick in the car. So she tries to put it on. A fight ensues. He takes the lipstick from her and dabs a little bit on. This is the funniest thing. He dabs a little bit of the lipstick on the steering wheel. <laughs> and then and then he's he's driving next to this woman biker and he burns his finger on the um he burns his middle finger on the cigarette lighter and then he gives he's holding his finger out at her. To, <laughs> and it's the middle finger. So she whistles in her biker gang to get uh, like to start attacking Hitler's car. Which is hilarious because he's like, are you insane? This is Hitler's car. And they're a Jewish family too, which is adds to the humor. It's so funny. And they're a Jewish family. So one thing leads to another. They crash. The cigarette lighter flies into his mouth, which burns his tongue. He ends up slamming his face on the steering wheel with the dab of lipstick on it. So And he ends up crashing into a... Uh, a vet of a world, world war, war II veterans, veterans like gathering world war II <laughs> veterans convention so he shows up he can't speak and he has a perfect killer mustache which is done in lipstick so he starts going like he starts talking like killer at this convention i was absolutely pissed i fucking cried laughing oh my god it's it's absolutely brilliant and it it still holds up i remember it came out i was able to get a copy of it on vhs which i'm going to keep in my collection forever because it's just so fun and funny and uh it 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 has a great ending uh very uh very very positive ending not an ending that you would typically um expect in a movie such as this but um a good wholesome feeling a charitable feeling so check rat race out if you haven't it's a yeah phenomenal phenomenal movie it's so funny. There's like nine different subplots all happening at the same time, and they're all so yep. funny. The, the you should have bought a squirrel moment, like that one makes me laugh. Like re- I rewatched it. I rewatched it last year, and I was like crying. I was in tears laughing. It's so funny. Oh and like I, I think it's it's a movie. Like people talk about like Simpsons humor and like the show The Simpsons, like how they did humor. I think that movie 
really has like Simpsons humor. Like so, like just that whole sequence he talked about with like the Hitler Museum. It's like it's like a joke out of the Simpsons. Like it's so fucking funny. Like there's just so yeah. many layers of funny gags. The the scene with Wayne Knight and Rowan Atkinson with the heart. And <laughs> I I just think about it. I'm cracking up because it's so fucking funny. Oh my god. It's that it's actually it's actually hysterical, man. Yeah, um, it's I it's really good. Oh yeah. So 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 funny. And it just doesn't, it doesn't like just the humor doesn't end. And if there's there's a lot of interesting sort of um side characters too, like one scene where um all flights are grounded. So it takes flying out of the equation to get to New Mexico to get the prize. But um uh what's his name? He's from um Rowan Atkinson? Uh, no, uh, sorry, I'm just going to search him up really quick. Breck and Meyer. Mm-hmm. He, he ends up at this airport. He finds out that his flight's grounded. He runs into Amy Smart, who turns out to be a helicopter pilot who p- flies privately. So she's like, oh, yeah, do you need a ride or whatever? Yeah. So as they're going, they're flying. They're the only people that can fly in the movie. They're flying. And she's like, yeah, I just have to stop by my boyfriend's really quick. And it, they fly over, and it's the friggin' host of Ripley's Believe It or Not, the show back in the '90s and early 2000s. <laughs> Dean Kane Dean is Kane in the Superman, school. yeah, <laughs> yeah, Dean Kane. So he's he's cheating on his girlfriend Amy Smart. She angrily just like crashes this helicopter down and throws tools on his truck, and it's like this big like dramatic sequence. Um, oh man, I could go on and on and on about uh, Rat Race, directed by Jerry Zucker who also did uh, Airplane, mm-hmm. Police Squad, Ghost. Um, so he, he definitely knows a lot about humor. Uh, and just to wrap up what I watched this week as well, I also watched Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2 for the first time. Oh, nice. Uh, I, yeah, I had never seen them. There's a lot of Marvel movies. That soundtracks. I oh, my. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I won't say too much about these movies, but... Just really fun, really cool characters, really good voiceovers, good color, uh, good movie for the family. There's a perfect blend of like romance, humor, violence, suspense. But ultimately, my favorite character, Bradley Cooper as Rocket, this little mm-hmm. raccoon who's like this little badass. And Vin Diesel, who pretty much sort of bit from his role as the Iron Giant yeah. as Groot. <laughs> Um, so he, he voice just says, "I am Groot all the time." He's like, "All oh, you." That's do. all he said. Yep. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Wrapping up, Guardians of the Galaxy one and two, really, really fun movies. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to sort of doing a deeper dive into Marvel movies. I sort of slept on them for a long time, and as I've gotten into movies more and became more of a self-proclaimed critic, if you will, I've sort of turned my my back to them a little bit, which is a shame because I do yeah. enjoy. Um, I, I do I do enjoy uh, you know a whole list of different cinema and I don't I don't want to be sort of ignorant to to Marvel movies because they are so successful and a lot of there's a lot of money that goes into these pictures so I have to yeah. sort of get over my CGI over the top phase and I just have to sort of focus on um, the good aspects of it and like even in Guardians of the Galaxy too like one of my favorite actors ever Kurt Russell. He plays the dad of Chris Pratt and it's just like this funny 80s sort of convertible sequence. Um, But yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, really, really fun movies. I wouldn't necessarily rate them high, like compared to like a movie like Psycho or, you know, anything like that. But um, I think, yeah, if you're a kid, if you're an adult, 
check them out. They're really fun. But yeah, uh, yeah. what about what about you, John? What did you watch? Uh, well, I just want to say, like, Guardians of the Galaxy in particular, like, I think uh, in the context of those other Marvel movies, I think they kind of, you know, people have talked about kind of, there's now, like, what, like, a million of those movies, like, 20 or 30, I don't know, there's, like, a lot of Marvel movies, and people have kind of said, like, what are kind of the most, you know, the ones that stand out the most, and I think the Guardians movies really have kind of changed the way that a lot of those movies are are done now, because I think, like, the James Gunn who directed it, like, the script is so funny, it's very, like, all this needle drops with all the soundtracks. I think like you see the DNA of the guardians movies and all of kind of the Marvel movies to come. And I think like, uh, you know, especially on places like film Twitter, there's a lot of people who are very kind of anti Marvel. And I, to an extent, I kind of agree because, you know, Disney, it's the Disney vacation of everything. And, and people kind of see them as these kind of soulless corporate, you know, properties and entities, but I, I think they're just, they're really fun popcorn blockbuster movies. And I think the guardians movies are really out of all the Marvel movies are probably my favorite. And I think guardians two in particular, has a really great um, part to it. Um, I really like how it's almost like a bottle episode movie. Like it's all kind of in one kind of location, which I really liked. Uh, I know it's been a while since I watched it, but I remember watching it. I really like that aspect of it because I find some of these movies, they're just like, I think some of the most egregious ones, like I think uh, one of the last Avengers, it's like, there's like eight different like geographic locations. I'm like, what this movie is like jumping every scene and like to a different part of the planet. And like this, that movie, it pretty much all takes place in like the same small geographic area, which I really like. I thought that was really cool. Um, I, I watched a lot of crap again for our audience listening. Uh, we had a bit of a week break in between. So I've watched a lot of stuff this week. Uh, so uh, I'll hopefully not try to talk for an entire hour, but I, I watched a lot of stuff. Uh, TV wise, um, if you listen to the last episode, I was watching uh, The Handmaid's Tale and I was also watching the Netflix cartoon series Centaur World. Um, I think we only watched like an episode of Handmaid's Tale, so I won't really get into it, but we did finish Centaur World again. Check out the last episode where I talked a bit about it. Uh, it's really well done. Um, great musical animated comedy. Um, the last episode in particular is quite like dark and I really liked it. And I thought uh, overall it was well done. It's kind of leading in towards a sequel, like a second season. Um, but in of itself, it stands out. It's, it's a really fun, creative uh, musical cartoon. Um, so in terms of stuff I watched this week, I'll just kind of go, uh, you know, chronologically. So the Sunday uh, previously we recorded uh, that evening, I, I mentioned I, uh, I took the Monday off. So I had a bit of a long weekend. So I went uh, to the good old Mayfair Theater and I went and saw an American Werewolf in London, the, the 1981 film by John Landis. Uh, really great movie. I hadn't seen it in many, many years. I think I'd last watched it with my dad when I was like a kid. So it had been a very long time since I've seen it, but um, it still holds up quite well. It's incredibly like a punchy movie. I think it's only about 97 minutes, 95 minutes long. I forgot how like short the movie is. It's like it's like the same length as like Space Jam. It's, it's incredibly mm. punchy. Um, just overall synopsis for those who haven't watched it. It's about uh, these two like hitch, like I guess, um, uh, like they're hitchhikers or tourists from America. They're kind of backpacking through uh, Europe. And, uh, oh, and, and Quinn, Quinn has a sweet VHS copy. Yeah, he's holding up the tape he's showing off. Yeah, and I, I that's nostalgic. That's, that's, that's the tape sweet, my, yeah. That's the literal exact tape that my uh, my parents had. That's the one I watched as a kid. So, you know, seeing that brings back memories. But uh, remember, did you guys, did you go, when you guys were growing up, I remember they had that awful movie, uh, American Werewolf in Paris. And yes, I got, I thought that, that was American <laughs> Werewolf in London. And I was like, oh, I'm going to finally watch American Werewolf in London. And I was like, this awful other movie. And I was like, oh, my god <laughs> yeah it's not 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 a quite as good but uh, no. yes yeah, so the, the story is these two guys david and jack or sorry that david and uh yeah it's jack david and jack they're uh, these tourists these backpackers in europe they stop overnight at this pub it's a full moon out they go in and the, the people in the pub are like very sketched out because like they know that you know full moon isn't good but they don't want to tell the tourists like what's going on they're you know it's a little bit of like xenophobic they're kind of like they don't like oh he's american tourists they don't really want to but like when they leave, like the barkeep, she's just like, why didn't you say anything? Like these kids are in trouble. But 
they walk on and it's such a great piece of again this is like a horror comedy like it's very much like a black comedy but the horror in this is very well done very scary that whole opening sequence with the uh where the wolf is like looming and we hear the howling it's very terrifying and then the wolf emerges it charges at david knocks him down and it attacks jack the way that shot is really well done it's very like quick and snapping and it's it's very terrifying we talked a little bit last episode on green room how like the violence in there is very like you don't want to see the violence very much the kind of the same way in this movie where the violence is like really disturbing and shocking and uh you know jack is torn apart he's killed david is also wounded david is then in a hospital in london uh, we find out, of course, that he was attacked and bitten by a werewolf. So now David himself is becoming a werewolf and the film kind of chronicles his, his story. And there's also this great little, again, it's a black comedy. He sees these visions of his friend, Jack, who's kind of like a spirit, uh, like ghost or whatever. And he's like, it's really dark. He's like telling the whole time the movie's like, kill yourself, kill yourself. You have to kill yourself because you're going to become a werewolf. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is pretty, pretty brutal. It's like his choice is either become a werewolf and kill people or, you know, just end his life. It's pretty dark. Um, yeah, very fun. I mean, famously, I think Rick Baker was the uh, did the special effects of this movie. It's kind of considered like the Godfather. I mean, you know, Tom Savini, you know, special shout out to him. But oh, Rick I Baker is kind yeah. of the most. I think he's the most Oscar nominated winning, um, you know, best animated effects um, guru of his time of this, of, you know, current moments. Uh, he did the animation of this famously, the transformation scene. You know, people often say that this was the movie that started the best uh, special effects Oscar award. Uh, this was the first winner, but it actually started, I believe, as kind of a reaction to um, uh, David Lynch's The Elephant Man, which, you know, had, you know, John Hurt and that great makeup. Famously, there was kind of a reaction, like, how did this movie not get any awards for that? And so the Academy decided to create this special effects uh, designation. And, you know, Rick Baker won for this. It's kind of considered, like, one of the greatest special effects movies of its time. And, you know, he would go on to have just a freaking amazing career. I think he did like Harry and the Hendersons. He did uh, even stuff like Ed Wood and Nutty Professor. He won Oscars for that. So he's he's still to this day, like someone who still works in Hollywood is he's kind of considered like the top special effects guy of his of his time. But um, the, the soundtrack of this is great. A lot of like moon inspired music. We have like, uh, we have, uh, you know, Black Moon, I'd say, what is, what is it? The CCR song. A black moon rising or whatever we have bad, that. Bad, bad, moon, bad moon rising yeah yeah bad moon rising the transformation scene we have moon dance we have uh blue moon by bobby vinton like it's such a great soundtrack it's really catchy uh the only downside i think is like it kind of shoehorns this kind of romance plot which i gotta say uh there's like a scene where they have sex where he's like going down on her i'm like wow good on david he's a giving glover like you know a lot of these 80s dudes like you know it's just like uh, the way they're filmed is pretty uh pretty silly but i'm like wow good on him he's, he's really giving it but uh it's kind of it's kind of silly like it kind of takes away from the movie like she's kind of like this nurse who's taking care of him and just inexplicably becomes his like mommy dom girlfriend for no reason and it's kind of dumb but otherwise the movie's great the ending is very disturbing very intense and i i forgot how like shocking it is when the when the transformation happens the werewolf effects in this are great it's just so terrifying he's like almost like this giant bear wolf hybrid and just the sound the fully work on the snarling and it, it's just so scary but it's uh, the movie to its credit is just very punchy. It's not very long. So you can pretty much bang it out in like an hour in a bit and it, you'd have a good time. So great movie still holds up. I also went back to the theaters on Friday the 13th. For those of you in Ottawa, Mayfair, uh... every Friday the 13th, they're doing a marathon where they show uh, a Friday the 13th movie. The one recently was Friday the 13th part three. And, uh, you know, Friday the 13th is my probably my favorite film series, if not like up there with like Rocky, which is another series I love. Um, Friday the 13th Part 3 is a fun movie. It's, uh, you know, came out in 82, directed by Steve Milner. 
Um, it's most notable because it was famously released theatrically in 3D. It was filmed in 3D. So I think to its, you know, to its credit and to its detriment, there's so many scenes where like there's like close-ups of things like and protruding as I'm showing you guys right now at the camera. It's so goofy now. It's very it's, champion. It's the yeah. first one where he wears the goalie mask too, isn't it? Yes, he uh, kills one of the characters and the character has like this like aquatic gear and a goalie mask for some reason. And yeah, he puts on the mask and that becomes, you know, the lasting legacy of Jason. Uh, I, I the remember mask. there's like this hip, I, I remember watching that one too and there was this hippie guy I really liked and the hippie guy gets like electrocuted. And I was like, no. Yeah, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's these stoner characters. Like, the, you know, it's, it, I, I will say like, I think uh, compared to the first and second one, this kind of makes up as a little like this, at the time, I think it was supposed to be a trilogy and then they did like a fourth one. It's like, this. the movies had like five or six different final movies, but they kept it going for for, uh, you know, money purposes. I don't think the um, the teenagers in this one are as good as the second one or even the first one, but I do love, there's the, like, the stoner couple in this, and I was watching my girlfriend, I'm like, wow, I really relate, we really relate to these characters, because they're like, all the shenanigans going on, and they're just like passed down the couch because they're too high. I'm like, wow, I, I can really relate to these guys. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, it's the, the tone is much more intentionally campy. Of Jason himself, though, in this, it's much more of like a you know, in the second one, he's he's a, he's a menacing physical presence, but he's a very kind of, if you look at the actor who plays him himself, he's kind of slimmed down. He looks like a kind of an average Joe. The Jason in this one is like, uh, you know, blocks your path. It's like, like, like the wrestler. He's like a, this very physical beast in this movie. And I think um, while the beginning, the most of the opening of the, 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 the um, the plot of this movie is, is quite campy and silly. Um, the ending where it's just him and the final go, Chris, I think it's, it's very, it's very physical and very, uh, very intense. It's kind of a big tonal shift, which uh, it, it's, it's like quite, quite shocking and disturbing to watch because like, most of this movie is pretty campy and silly and the characters are kind of dumb, but then when it switches over, it's quite thrilling. And I think, uh, you know, uh, contrast to the second one where I think it's pretty scary all the way throughout. Um, I also did, like, you did know, you, did, did you watch, have you watched sleepaway camp? I was just wondering. I have, I just yeah. Thinking, yeah. 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 Yeah, and Sleepaway Camp is where we're going to have to talk about it and rewatch because that's a. I, I only watched that just uh, last year and uh, I really oh, liked wow. it. I thought it was really cool. Um, we'll have to talk about that again because, yeah, that's such a good movie. And it's it's very much almost like, again, like a, if Friday the 13th, the first two are a ripoff of Halloween, Sleepaway Camp is literally a ripoff of Friday the 13th. But I, I think it, it's a pretty interesting movie, especially the way it, you know, it's it's a little bit uh, problematic, but the way it kind of does gender mm-hmm. and stuff. And it's, it's, it's kind of interesting too. Uh, but I think, and again, I think a criticism I have of this movie, again, a lot of the kills they constantly go back to this barn and it's the movie kind of constantly like throughout the movie i mean later it goes into the house but a lot of the violence and stuff is it's kind of directly with this barn like the character's like oh what's this barn they go in and like jason kills him and i think it kind of makes it a little bit boring because it's like come on like we already seen this barn over and over again it doesn't really play it that much with geography the same way like the second movie did um and i also think you know while i like chris the final girl i think like the way that they kind of give her kind of a backstory where she actually you know, met Jason before and she has kind of this trauma and it's kind of almost framed and played in a way as almost like a sexual assault. So it's very kind of disturbing. The actress herself isn't really good. She's kind of whiny and it's not really convincing and it was kind of silly, but it, yeah, it's, it's still a fun watch. Um, Jason is just brutal in it. The ending is brutal. Um, the kills are, I think, a little bit weaker, but it's still kind of fun to watch. And it's got, again, it doesn't take itself too seriously. It kind of is the first entry where it's a little bit campy. I think the fourth one the next one to follow is a bit less campy, but that would, of course, kind of return and continue throughout the series. It, it, it's even though it's like two years into the franchise, it already has like a self-awareness to it, which is uh, which is kind of fun. Uh, moving onward, uh, I won't speak too long on this because we'll, we'll talk about it in more detail eventually, but uh, I was brutally hung over last Sunday and I watched Star Wars 
for me, Star Wars, I won't talk about the details. Like we'll talk about it in more detail, but I only watched it because to me, it's like a comfort movie. Like if I'm sick, if oh, I'm like, absolutely Star Wars is everything. I just throw on Star Wars. And I think I, I, we were talking beforehand before we started recording about a topic of movies to watch when you're hungover or sick or when you just feel like an overall piece of trash. And I think Star Wars for that is like a, it's just a comfy movie. Like I've seen it so many times as a kid, mm, you know, so it's, it's not too long. It's like a two hours or something like that. And it's yeah, just, I think um, it's, like, yeah, it's a very short when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just pretty comfy and cozy. Like I, I watch it and it just, it, it puts me in a good mood, even when I'm I'm like I uh, can't keep any well, food down or the moss Isley like, can't the moss Isley can't there's yeah. so many good scenes yeah even when I want to die it's it's a good movie to watch um we also <laughs> this week uh it was fun this week uh, me and my girlfriend we had our, her niece over for the week so uh we did a bunch of like Ottawa tourist stuff all week but we also watched a lot of like uh movies we had watched Kung Fu Panda with her and her family uh a few weeks ago so we watched the second and third Kung Fu Panda my god I, I was blown away by Kung Fu Panda Kung Fu Panda 2 if we're talking picks, if we're talking straight out Pixar, if we're talking DreamWorks movies, you know, they've done like the How to Trade Your Dragon, they've done the Shrek 2, Shrek. I would say this movie is probably the best DreamWorks movie, if not up there with like Shrek 2 and How to Train Your Dragon. I mean, Kung Fu Panda 2 is a unbelievable movie. It's one of the best animated movies to come out of this decade. It's um, from the beginning. Um, it's just like there's kind of a little bit of exposition at the beginning where these characters arrive to attack the village and they fight them off and it's kind of it kind of introduces the plot of this character played by Gary Oldman, this kind of Lord Shen, this, it's like a peacock. He's like this disturbing character who's been kind of in exile, who's returning to take over the kingdom. And there's this story, history with him and Poe, the panda character where, I mean, spoiler, but uh, we find out that he's responsible for like kind of genocide and killing all the pandas. And like Poe is the last remaining panda. And, uh, but after that moment, the, the action sequences, the rest of the movie is just like balls to the wall, incredible action sequences. It's like watching, Watching this, I've never seen a movie before that reminded me so much of like a video game, like say like Uncharted or even like the later Resident Evils where it's like just crazy action stuff, like quick time event stuff falling over, you're running across buildings. It, it really has a credible sense of scale and it's such a good dark story. Like the first movie very much is sort of like uh, focusing on kind of, you know, you can achieve anything, you know, success can come from anywhere. You know, this movie has kind of like a story about, you know, kind of overcoming trauma and learning to forgive the past. And, you know, Poe's character is, kind of, you know, really traumatized because he doesn't really know where he really comes from. And, you know, he kind of has these weird flashbacks, but he doesn't know about his own origin story and history. And, he, and you know, the, the, the movie really plays into it. There's a great final sequence where, you know, Poe's confronted by all these warships and it's so well done. The animation is so much, it's such, it's such a darker movie than the first one. It's a lot of dark reds, dark blues. Aesthetically, it's incredible. You know, this movie, I think, was nominated for Best Animated Feature, but lost to, I think, Rango, which I've never seen. But my God, I can't believe this movie lost. Oh, you should watch is... Rango. It's, it's a masterpiece. Rango's oh, is great. it? I'll have to watch Rango. But my God, yes. Kung Fu Panda 2 is a fucking amazing movie. I did also watch, I'll just talk quick, but I saw the third one. Not quite, I don't think not quite as good as the second one. But I mean, comparing it to the first one, the animation is incredible. Like, just like you could see, like, the, the, the 2000s evolution of animation itself, where, like, characters look, if you watch them like Shrek, they're very kind of slick and round. And there's not a lot of fur. And and you know texture and you watch something like kung fu panda 3 where it's like oh my god like look at the fur on this panda like it's so detailed you can, re you can reach out and touch it yeah it's like it's like going from like toy story 2 to like toy story 1 with the dog yeah. and it's like polygonal and then you have like the actual fur texture with the, the puppy on toy yeah story 2. yeah you can really see evolution in kung fu panda 3 again if the first one's the body if the third second one's the, the mind the third one's kind of like the soul it's about kind of finding inner peace and i think while it's not as good to some extent as Kung Fu Panda 2, I think animation-wise and just action-wise, it's a great movie. And I think it makes up 
the first, second, and third ones make up an incredible, great trilogy. Like, I think uh, out of all the Pixar movies, I know there's a lot of people who are big, like How to Train Your Dragon Heads. There's like a big community that, you know, there's people who love all the Shrek movies, especially the younger generations who kind of grew up after them. Um, to my money, this is probably the best DreamWorks series ever. And I think uh, they're incredible movies and I would recommend anyone watch them. And I think um, also great love letters to Kung Fu. Like there's so many great little Kung Fu tropes. Uh, I think Jackie Chan also voices a character in the movie and he's, he's great, he plays like a monkey character. It's, it's such a fun movie. And I think the second, third ones also, just thematically, story-wise, they owe a lot to like the first one, not so much. The first one's pretty Western, but the second, third ones, take a lot of their themes and stories from like kind of like Chinese mythology and kind of Chinese storytelling, which is really cool. You don't see a lot of that in like Western movies where it's a lot of like, be yourself and you can do anything. Well, the second three ones are a lot more of like, you know, finding peace through your own kind of, you know, love within and kind of sharing that with it's, it's very, it's very interesting in the way it's um, it approaches that in like a mainstream Hollywood movie. So really cool animated movies, never watch them again. Like anything that came out after 2008, I have a lot of gaps with cause like, I was like starting my first job and I was like, you know, approaching university. I didn't watch a lot of those movies. I'm, I'm just like, oh, they're kids movies. I never really watched them. But I've noticed like on spaces like film Twitter and on Letterboxd, it's like kind of a whole generation of like Gen Z movie kids that are taking over all of the movie discussions. They dominate like guys like Karst Karsten Runquist, who have like famous YouTube channels and they dominate Letterboxd. These guys are all like, my God, they're, they're born in like 2000, 2001. And they've, they've got like hundreds of thousands of YouTube followers these guys like have watched these movies growing up and talk about them. So I've been going back and watch them and to their credit, they're, they're great movies. So yeah, I loved it. Also uh, uh, with uh, Natalie's niece, we watched Beetlejuice with her. I mean, that's, I love nice. more like Tim Burton, you know, people rag on him for, Oh, and you're holding up the VHS. Nice. <laughs> people rag on awesome. Tim Burton for, for his late two thousands output. Cause a lot of it is a little bit, uh, you know, people like, Oh, it's got the Danny Elfman score. It's got Helena Bonham Carter. And, you know, it's got quirky goth uh, aesthetic probably true but i mean I, I looked at his filmography from like Wee herman's big adventure all the way through for like 20 years he was just releasing nothing but bangers and bangers even including something like uh which he didn't direct but i mean he pretty much was almost wholly responsible for a neighbor mm. before christmas um, the, the cult the cult following for that is just unbelievable that film is just yeah <laughs> it's almost like a religion you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, i mean beetlejuice is still such a fucking fun movie it's so funny mm. it's so dark it's so violent and like i just love the humor in it i michael keaton he just eats up the room i love the opening where he meets somebody's like i've seen exercised 130,000 times and I laugh every time and he's just he's so manic at it he's so crazy and like it's probably I mean with regards to Batman it might be like his best movie because like he's just so fucking yeah. funny in it it's did, so did you did you guys ever watch that the Be Beetlejuice TV series growing up like there was like an yeah the series. cartoon series it was yeah, so, so, so ADHD but I mean it it's was so colorful too it's so yes. zany and colorful yeah and it's it's actually kind of like a worthy success of the movie because it kind of it, it borrows that kind of the aesthetic aestheticness too and i do really like um uh what i, I think i was re-watching it i was like uh you know winona Ryder. she's kind of like an early gen z icon because she's very yes. gothic and between this and heather she's very like laconic and very like she's eating dinner with a family and she's like dressed yeah. in like funeral outfit i'm like i'm like you're kind of Brent, a style Brent, icon for a whole generation of young girls Brent, now, bram so. stoker bram stoker's dracula <laughs> yeah and it's so oh my god and the soundtrack with the harry belafonte like it's so funny with the day it's just it's just a lot of fun it's so funny it doesn't take itself too seriously it's got such a great creative vision I mean, Tim Byrne is just a, a visual genius. He's an artist first and foremost. And, uh, you know, while his later output's a little bit kind of uh, samey and derivative, I mean, he's popular for a reason. He just made his his early, his, oh, check out if you've never really, if you're a younger audience listening, if you haven't seen his 80s movies, you haven't seen like Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, if you haven't seen even seen Batman, like check those out. Frank, visual Frank aesthetics in them. Or the yeah, Vincent, I, I, Vincent, Vincent's really good too. The short film, I thought was really good. Yeah, and, and, and he said, 
Yeah, and you said Frankenweenie, like the live action one, but also the animated one. That was the first movie I ever saw with my girlfriend when I went on a date to the movies to saw it. So that one has a, a big piece of my heart. Pretty special. <laughs> Hell yeah. Cor- Corpse, Bride, Corpse Bride as well. He did a lot yeah. of good stuff. Corpse um, Bride's a great movie, yeah. I know, you, I know you had mentioned earlier too, Ed Wood. Ed Wood is like a complete underrated film from Tim, mm-hmm. Tim Burton. Uh, I think a lot of people Ed- consider his best one too. Yeah, yeah, I would like... I, I would say that that's the closest thing he's ever had to an Oscar worthy movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have other films too, like man, Tim Burton's badass. like Michael Keaton's Batman with Jack Nicholson as the Joker is so, one of my, oh my favorites. So he's made. Um, yeah. He's, he's the real deal, man. Tim Mars Burton's attacks. Awesome. I love Mars attacks. Oh my God. Mars man. attacks. That's, a, that's, that's awesome so movie. fucking funny. Oh my yeah, God. We're gonna have to do a deep dive into him too, because man, all this stuff is so. Yeah, fucking, we gotta do it. Yeah, we gotta do a Tim Burton uh, watch series. Even like, his even bad I, stuff is good. Is fun. Yeah, I even like. I even enjoyed the Willy Wonka remake. Yeah, Charlie the Chocolate Factory. Factory. I thought that was pretty fun. Mm-hmm. But Be- Beetlejuice will always stand the test of time. Like oh, that's yeah. that to me is like definitely one of my favorite movies. Definitely. So I'll wrap up. Uh, we talked a little bit offhand. I, we we spent the whole episode for audience. Uh, my favorite canon, one of my personal favorite canon films is uh, Space Jam, although watching again didn't like it. I was, uh, we wanted something to do with the, with the niece, so we, we rented Space Jam oh. New Legacy. I gotta say, people are shitting on this movie, and honestly, to some credit, but I thought it was just pretty fun. Like, I mean, just, you have to understand, Space Jam New Legacy, much like Space Jam, the first one, is just, it just has no art to it. It's just a movie. It's just an enterprise. It's, it's pure commercialism. Um, but I did find some weird odd quirks of this movie for starters, you know, LeBron James has been do, acting in various roles. I know he's been, he was in Trainwreck, the uh, Amy Schumer movie, as opposed to someone like Michael Jordan, who like doesn't act at all, but was in Space Jam. But he, you know, I think Michael Jordan be- acted better than LeBron in this. LeBron in this movie is like an asshole. He's like a dick to his son. There's this whole plot dynamic where he's like trying to do this basketball camp and he's like trying to force his son to like focus. It's like LeBron, as a kid, like was playing video games. He's like, Oh, you can't play games. You got to focus on basketball. And he's just such a dick to his son in this. I was like, wow. It's like, he's like, like by all accounts, Michael Jordan as a person, kind of an asshole, kind of almost a sociopathic competitor. LeBron James by comparison is widely considered to be like a very nice person and someone who came from a pretty rough upbringing. Um, but in this movie, like LeBron is just like, he's like a me, he's like kind of a dick in this, but um I honestly think, again, I said with Space Jam, when we talked, again, if you're listening, you didn't watch it, check out the Space Jam episode because uh, we talked a little bit about that. Uh, I thought like Space Jam, the animated sequence, once they entered Toon World was kind of dumb. And I thought like the kind of live action stuff was good. And this one, the live action stuff, and this is honestly terrible. When they get into the Toon World, I thought it was kind of fun. And I, I, this movie is so fucking insane. Like they're just like, spoiler alert, they go into Casablanca. Like I honestly, I almost like dropped my, I was guffawed. I was like, holy shit you like play it play it sam and it's fucking like yosemite sam i could not believe what the fuck i was watching um yes cynically <laughs> this is like an attempt of warner brothers to mine their ip to almost like you know unconsciously promote hbo max and even in like that basketball scene where it's insane there's like characters from all of like the warner bros ips everywhere they're not even like paying attention to the, the game they're just like randomly there's like pennywise the fucking clan he's just like clapping and like not even do it it's so crazy and the fucking the the what are the, the 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 characters from Clockwork Orange the the Groods or whatever their name is the they're, they're there I'm like so you're telling me Papula Pew couldn't be in this movie because it's problematic but you can have literal rapist characters from a Clockwork Orange I'm like I, this movie is insane but <laughs> to its credit <laughs> the animation it was really well done and it was just fucking fun it was just super colorful it was fun to watch I pretty much forgot they, about they it after get, but they, they go get they go to actually is kind of a cool idea 
Yeah, they yeah. Go against I, AI or something. I think like the idea yeah. of like kind of like an algorithm kind of skewering on kind of like modern tech, it, it's kind of fun. It doesn't really do really anything with it. But I did like the fact that, you know, Lula Bunny isn't just this walking like clitoris. She actually has like a personality. She's played by Zend Zendaya. Like the opening shows her is like in the Wonder Woman world. And, you know, she's kind of actually like, the main character in this. Like Bugs Bunny really doesn't do fuck all. And I think it's kind of, again, I said Space Jam's kind of a shitty Looney Tunes movie compared to something like Looney Tunes back in action. I mean, this is not really... Uh, if you're a Looney Tunes head, it's pretty bad, but I think it was pretty fun at the very least. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't spend $24 on it. It was pretty expensive, but uh, if you want to watch something that's fun, and again, the, the the animated sequence when they're going through all the fucking Warner Brothers movies, that was so crazy. Like, I was like, am I, do I have brain worms? Like, what am I watching? Like, I was just losing my mind because I was like, what the heck? But uh, it was colorful and fun. It wasn't boring. It's kind of funny to compare it to Space Jam. Space Jam, by comparison, it's like watching like something from the 50s. It's so like, there's barely anything going on in it. Like, it's kind of weird to think that Space Jam was seen as this kind of crazy, zangy, commercialized, you know, property mining thing. And then you watch Space Jam, the new one, and it's like, it's total ADHD brain. It's just crazy, colorful shit happening at all times. Uh, not a, not the best movie, but it was fun. It was uh, silly. And if you go into it kind of expecting that, you'll, you might enjoy it. Um, to wrap up, sorry, I've been going so long. I also watched the first two of the Fear Street movies. We watched Fear Street Part 1, 1994, and the second one, Part 2, 1978. I got to say, I went into it not knowing what to expect. I figured it would kind of be like a Riverdale-esque type horror, and to an extent it is. But I got to say, I really dug the first Fear Street. Uh, quite a... I was surprised at how mean and brutal it is. There's some crazy violent scenes and we watched with the niece because i'm like oh it won't be that bad it's like a teen slasher like something less intense than scream that's like way more intense than scream there's like a, some pretty freaking brutal kill, kills in it and um i really like the overall mythos i love the homages to like stuff like jaws and uh, there's you know there's stephen king references i mean the overall plot structure is very much like a I've never read the Fear Street books, but it's very much like a straight out of Stephen King with this kind of overall witch mythology oh, and kind of it's like it's like it. It's like this character who's like infected this town in every decade or generation. There's like a some kind of violence or trauma that happens. It's the Fear Street books are great. I got into those recently because I actually didn't write, read them when I was a little kid. And actually, you know, they're you know, it's always the same formula, but it actually like Arl Stein actually like plays around a lot with the kind of conventions. So there's like a huge plot twist that you don't see coming. And I actually found them very entertaining, like just the way they were written and like how the characters talk. And it's kind of like a more adult version of the Goosebumps books, but like more yeah. kind of more darker and more blood and more kind of plot twists. But they were fun, the books. Yeah. I, I never read the, I, I think I read like the kids versions of them. Like there was like the, the ghost of, there was like a kid, Fear Street adaptation for children. So I think I read one of those as a kid, but I'm like, I didn't even know these were like these adult like horrors, like kind of aimed for like young adult audiences. Uh, but uh, yeah, I thought like the overall story was fun. The characters were really cool. And I was, I felt really sympathetic for the ones who died. I was like, wow, like I really was genuinely invested in them. And I, uh, the second one, I did like it, but I think uh, I think it has kind of the same strengths and weaknesses. Oh, the, so as the, the first one. So annoying. That short-haired woman. I, I couldn't stand her. I just like kill her off in scene one, and she kept well, living. And I was like, "Fuck, man!" Like, well, I can't I, deal I, with. Yeah, I think like the strengths and weaknesses of both. Like, I think strength-wise, I like the. I disagree with you. I actually like the characters. I think the characters were good. I think I like the overall the the brute the brutalness of it. It's willingness to go really dark and brutal. I really liked uh, weaknesses. My God, like needle drops throughout. Like, do we need like a, a new rock song every one minute? It's like I know Cruella got like kind of raked over the coals for that, but that, it's like every fucking like twenty just a, seconds. Just in case, like, should just in case I stay or should I go? It's like come yeah, on, just, man. Like, just in case you like, weren't sure what year it was. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, do we have to have a new song every? But I think the second one and first one they do a lot of that at the beginning, and then it kind of just goes away at the end. The second one I did like it. Uh, I thought it was quite intense, especially the ending. But I do think visually. 
uh, which just kind of sucks because like Friday the 13th is one of my favorite series. So I thought like, oh, I'm going to love this one the most. I like 94 a little bit better. Uh, I felt like aesthetically in the second one, it was a little bit too muddled at times, especially when they're in kind of like the satanic cave. I, I had a hard time understanding what was going on. But um, I, I so far I've been liking it, liking it. I'm, I think we might, we might even watch the, uh, the last one tonight. So maybe I'll check that one out. Um, yeah, but if you're if you think it's just going to be like Stranger Things repeat, um, and you're kind of not wanting to watch it for that reason, I would say actually check it out because it's kind of pretty brutal and it's kind of fun. So you might. Are you like going to watch so. the? Are you going to watch the third one? Do you think too? Or yeah, we're. I think we we, we might even watch it tonight. We'll see. Uh, certainly by <laughs> next next episode, I'll probably chat about it. So uh, that was long winded, but I watched a lot of crap this week. So that's it for me, <laughs> Curtis. What did you watch this week? So pretty short and sweet. I was finishing my, my book this week, so I didn't watch too, too much. So uh, the first one I watched was uh, Roadrunner. And I think uh, that was the one on Anthony Bourdain, the documentary that came out this year. I think Quinn gave a really beautiful review for that too. Uh, but I just wanted to kind of briefly mention it just because uh, Anthony Bourdain was, is someone who really touched so many lives and he touched my life. But what I really liked about this documentary is that, uh, you know, I, I, I love him. So I'm always kind of, I have a bad habit of putting him on the pedestal, but I think, you know, it, it shows kind of the darker side too. He was quite moody and he could be quite difficult to deal with too. So it shows a kind of really rich kind of portrait of it too. What I don't like is that, you know, sometimes it kind of implies that, you know, uh, his girlfriend at the time, Asia Argento, who is Ar- Dario Argento's yeah, uh, daughter. daughter yeah. yeah. That she might've had a hand in it too. And I thought that was a little bit uh, inappropriate, but uh, yeah. yeah. So I, d- I didn't like that aspect, but I do like how it kind of, you know, it doesn't put him on a pedestal. It shows kind of a very fair, fair portrait of him, but it also shows like how many lies he touched and how meaningful his show was and just come, kind of where he came from and what led him to where he was and what led him to where he ended up too. Uh, so I thought that was a good documentary. And I think Quinn, as I said too, had a really great review on that last time. So I won't mm-hmm. say too much about that. Um, the other one I watched was, um, I watched three other films. So I watched Tombstone. Uh, that's a 90s Western one, 1993, I think. Classic. it's with the, Yes, all-star cast too. It's a very Hollywood Western. And you can kind of see the Hollywood like <laughs> treatment too. You know, they have all these incredibly good looking, you know, cowboys and and gorgeous gorgeous women i'm like there's so many gorgeous women in this <laughs> this town i wouldn't be able to get any work done because it, it there's they're all so good looking you know and yeah it's kurt russell uh he's plays wyatt earp and his brothers bill paxton and uh sam elliott you know sam elliott always looks like a cowboy he plays uh one of the other Earp brothers too and they have the gunfight at the okay corral a lot of the yeah. i'm your huckleberry <laughs> i'm your huckleberry yeah and they have uh yeah uh, Val Kilmer, who plays Doc Holliday, um, Doc Holliday, and he's got that kind of f- funky uh, Southern accent too, and it's really yeah, fun it's to so watch good. too. Even when he's uh, dying of tuberculosis, you know he has those beautiful t- uh, twin pearl grip uh, twin revolvers too, and he's like, I mean, he's probably he was probably a nightmare to work with on set. I'd I'd like to watch that uh, Val yeah, Kilmer. That it's a documentary of Val Kilmer because I know he was an absolute nightmare to work with on set, but I. I'm really interested in that too. So uh, that might be another one I check out this year, but yeah, it's, it's a really fun movie. I mean, it's not my favorite Western, but I mean, it's a, it's a really fun uh, film to watch. And I had an American friend uh, invite me over to watch it with his, uh, his partner and the Germans didn't really like it that much, but <laughs> I liked it. And uh, I, it was very nostalgic for me too. Cause my grandfather was a huge Western fan. So we always used to watch uh, Westerns when he was alive too. So kind of felt like his spirit was right there with us watching it. And my American friend liked it too, obviously. Uh, so yeah, it's a fun one to watch if you haven't uh, seen it or if you're looking for a good kind of old Western. Um, I also watched Censor, uh, which is a, a new horror movie that came out earlier this year too. Uh, so this is kind of a really, uh, really well done take. I, I didn't, well, I like the first half, the second half, I didn't like as much, uh, but it's about this woman set in the eighties, uh, like Thatcher era. 
And, uh, you know, they have the video nasties, which are these kind of films that were uh, kind of seen as, you know, extremely violent or controversial too. So they had this very kind of conservative uh, group that would review and moderate all and make all these cuts for the films too. And what's interesting is uh, the the main character is this young woman and uh, she's, uh, you know, she, you see through her, the narrative through her eyes, you see kind of everyday sexism and misogyny she faces because she's a woman you know she gets treated differently or she gets some pervy producer coming in like Weinstein or something and trying to come on to her it's really gross um, but it's really well done and she actually watches these films as a as part of a trauma narrative too so her her sister went missing when she was younger and her parents kind of uh, you know blame her for it I think and she feels kind of guilty too so her way of kind of dealing with that trauma narrative is, is watching these kind of extreme films and and she's kind of put up this like wall against, you know, uh, uh, being affected by this extreme violence too. But it's really well done too, just how we process violence too. And then second half does some crazy things and there's a lot of metaphors there. And I didn't, I didn't really get the, uh, I don't know if I fully got the ending. I don't know if I liked it, but it is a good film. It's really, uh, it's, it's shot almost like a giallo film too. So like one of those oh, nice. kind of 70s, 80s. Uh, with a kind of really rich color spectrum, like a Dario Argento film or a Lucio Fulci film, um, and without the misogyny, <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> or the weird eye fetish. I don't know. Yeah, or yeah, it's eyes or nipples. It's like it, yeah, give it a break. Like, yeah, what is wrong leave, with leave Italian those, people? Leave those, leave those, <laughs> leave women alone. You know, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it's a good horror movie. I, I, I kind of had a friend sent it to me, so I don't know where you can watch it, but I think it's on video in demand now. And the last film I watched was. Uh, I've been watching, wanting to watch it for a while because I'm a medievalist. Uh, it's the, the Green Knight, A24, just released mm-hmm. it with Dev Patel. Great actor, too. Um, I forget who directed it, but um, it was yeah, it was another expensive one to rent. It was uh, $25 on video on demand. It was worth it. Uh, it's A24, too. So, I mean, A24 always has stellar, these stellar visuals and kind of uh, really symbolic kind of sent a lot of symbolism and metaphors in the, the narrative, too. And it's an adaptation of the, uh, the Middle English yeah, Middle English poems for Gal in the Green Knight, which is also good if uh, you guys haven't read that one. I wrote I wrote uh, my first English uh, essay on that in university. Oh, did you? Oh, I, I got a fifty four, so I'm kind of like I don't know if I'll watch it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, well, this kind of uh, it feels like an acid trip, you know, because there's just so much weird imagery in it too, and there's yeah. a lot of jump cuts too. Uh, I I still don't know if I get all of it too. Uh, it feels almost like a dream dream too when you're watching it too interesting yeah very, the, the aesthetics yeah. of it look really interesting and i mean the story is very much like uh, about like uh kind of the perseverance of like what it means to be like a good knight and it's like very much kind of yes. like a, it's like a parable like a moral parable about like being a good knight and like showing restraint and and you know the willingness to kind of you know overcome that and you know overcome kind of all the things that take away from that you know sex and all that stuff too it's got a little raunchy in in the in the book a little well, portrayed raunchy but i wonder what the movie does with that stuff but the visuals look pretty cool i gotta say yeah, well, I mean, there's yeah, there's a lot of allegory in the poem too, and the the the, uh, the film does deviate from it uh, quite a bit. Uh, I felt some of the scenes were a bit pretentious, to be honest. I wasn't sure what the director was trying to tell us with some of the scenes, but I think just the execution was just so fascinating, and it's it's unlike any other movie I've seen, you know, this year or last year. Um, and I do think Dev Patel is great. Alicia Vikander plays the lady in the other world too, so they had this quest where. Um, uh, Sir Gowan, you know, he's the movie starts off and it's in Arthur's court and the, the weird green knight comes and interrupts their Christmas feast and he chops off his own head and there's blood mm-hmm. everywhere. And then Sir Gowan has to go to uh, Sir Bertilak's court, the green knight, and he has to fight the green knight uh, too. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a fa- it's a fascinating film and 
really fucking weird, but <laughs> I, I liked it. So <laughs> I, I would recommend it. Maybe not for $25, but I would say maybe wait for the price to go down a bit. And if you can yeah. see it in theaters, I would say definitely watch in theaters because it's very cinematic too. And I think I think you especially, John, I think you'd you would enjoy it. Cool, cool. So that's that's all that's all for me this week. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's been it's been great. I'm happy that we were able to catch up. Uh, we had a lot of stuff to talk about, and I'm glad we got to talk about, you know, if I don't know yet. I think by the time if the audience listens, this will either be one big episode or maybe we'll chop it in half. We'll see. So um, if you listen, if 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 you listen to the whole thing, great. If or if you listen to say if this was 5B, thank you for listening. Um so next week, uh, we're going to get back into it. We're going to continue on our uh, John Carpenter watch series. So we're going to be watching the famous slasher film, 1978, Halloween. So stay tuned for that I, one. I'm, so, I'm so excited for Halloween, the original Halloween. That I'm gonna, I actually got a copy of Halloween 2 to watch right back to back with it. Oh, so. nice. Yeah. I'm, very, yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah. And again, it's kind of f- funny coincidence that, you know, we watched Psycho today this week and then we watched Halloween next week because, you know, Janet Leigh's mm-hmm. daughter, Jim Lee Curtis, is in Halloween. It's kind of like two generations of Scream Queens, both in the same movie. So kind of funny how it worked out that way, just in kind of the order of our movies. And also stay yep. tuned. We're going to be doing, uh, you know, we're, we, as we mentioned, we jump back and forth between uh, different topics. So this week was Quinn's choice for his canon film. So next one up is going to be Curtis. I believe you're going to be talking about Into the Wild, which was one of mm-hmm. your favorite films. Yeah, my favorite film. Yeah. So I'm very excited to talk about it, too. And it's based on the uh, John Krakauer book. And uh, we'll have a good time with it, too. So do tune in yeah. to that. And I've well. never seen it, too. So I'm excited to check. Oh, that I, out I hope you like time. it. Yeah. Let me know. Yeah, if I watched, a copy. <laughs> yeah, I watched it recently for the first time. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, oh, I'm so glad you like it too. <laughs> so good. we're going to be also, as mentioned, we do our little fun topics, kind of round table discussion. So we've got some ideas. I think we might be doing something like our favorite car chase, car crash movies, but we have, uh, we've chatted offhand about some other ones. So we're going to get those up in ahead. So I know for our audience listening at home, if you're like me, if you like movie podcasts, I tend to like, I've subscribed to like so many movie podcasts, but I don't listen to them as much as I want to because I'm always like oh if I haven't seen the movie I can't listen to it I, I have like a weird quirk like that so uh, I, for some of these movie deep dives some of you might not have watched them so for some of you it might be kind of spoilery or new but uh, we're going to try to get some of those kind of roundtable discussions out kind of like what we do with our what we watch this week so you can kind of uh, get a get a little bit of more of eclectic mix of movies I think we don't want to hit you over the head with the same movie topic every single week uh, some people might get a little bored of that so we're going to try to mix it up and you know I think we're all kind of pretty open-minded when it comes to movies like I kind of will just watch anything I'll get anything a chance and 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 because i've done that i've actually kind of found and and just and explored and and seen movies that i never would have watched before that otherwise i was like really into so um excited to get back into that in terms of i guess i'll we'll do our final plugs myself uh uh letterbox johnny takes 91 um i also have a stuff stack i'm actually in the middle of getting something up so hopefully get that out i'll mention that when it's out uh but also i have another podcast domestic clients only uh check that one out we uh drink and rate review beer uh if you like that sort of thing check us out uh quinn anything you want to plug on your end for the seat truck yeah uh check out my instagram page uh at seat truck reviews i haven't done any um movie reviews in the past month or so but i have been writing them on my own accord and i will be releasing some uh soon and i plan on doing a 31 horror movie uh review in october so every day i'll be posting something so tune in for that but uh, other than that, that's it for me. What about you, Curtis? Uh, yeah, I have my uh, Run Stethers DVD pick of the month on the back row, and I'm trying to do one a month uh, these days, too. So the last one was The Girl Who Lives Down the Road, which is an early Georgie Foster film. Uh, but I'm hoping to come up with a new one for uh, September. I really liked, uh, I watched the animated uh, adaptation of, uh, of um, I've been watching a lot of Batman movies, the <laughs> animated ones, and I watched the new one for, uh, it's called Ga- Goth- uh, Gotham by Gaslight, which is a uh, kind of a, 
Victorian steampunk take on Batman. And I really like the okay. film actually too. And well, I won't say the killer was, but it's kind of like, it mixes Jack the Ripper with like kind of Victorian Batman London. And it's so cool. That's cool. Um, yeah. All right. Thanks a bunch audience. We will see you hopefully next week. And uh, again, if you guys have any like suggestions, if there's topics that you're really into, or if you'd even like want to be on an episode to chat with us, to talk about one of your favorite movies, uh, I think it's seat struck reviews uh, or the seat struck podcast at gmail.com uh, i don't know if i have the email the, right actually seat struck podcast at gmail.com that's it great okay that's the link so yeah message us if you want to connect with us and if you want to uh put some suggestions onward we'd love to check out anything uh so thanks so much folks listening we'll see you next week for halloween bye everyone <laughs>